Let's do oh, this. welcome to Dragon Talk. Yeah. I'm Greg Tito. <laughs> I'm Sherry Mazenoble. We are here to talk about both art and arcana. Yeah, we are. On the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Because we have four amazing guests. Four. Four. Count them. Four. Number one, Kyle Newman. Number, Number two, two, John Peterson. Number three. Michael Whitwer. Number four. Sam Whitwer. What? We have never had this many guests no, before. we haven't. It's uh, like a party. I think we've had <gasps> three before on one microphone, but I don't think we've ever had three. four before. No, this is nuts. This is unprecedented. Plus, we got a Pelham and a Ryan. That, that's right. That's a lot it of people in this room. up in here. So Art and Arcana, if you, in case you don't know, is a book that is coming out today. Ooh, I think it's more than a book. It is out in the tome. wild. It is a tome uh, that is a visual history of Dungeons and Dragons. It it's goes amazing. from the beginning when it was incepted. <laughs> is that a word? Yes. <laughs> to when it was completed, which is right now. Well, no, it doesn't good. go all the way to the complete because it's the, not the complete. will go on. It's a it's a fluid history. Just like my heart. It yes. will it will go on. It will. Um it is an amazing it's book. gorgeous. Yeah. How many pages? It is uh like more than more than four hundred pages. I I don't have the my and it sheets hurt, in front of me. And it uh, hurt your your it hand when you lifted it. It's definitely bit. lift it with use your knees and and two hands to pick that book up. Because it, it weighs like seven and a half pounds or something. Like more than a newborn. More than most newborns. <laughs> most newborns. Yeah. Some newborns are not that. Right. So 450 pages, 700 images of original art, unpublished draft material, pristine product, and rare imagery. They ha- they brought in stuff from their personal collections. John Peterson, we've had him on the yes. uh, uh, podcast before. Uh, he is a noted tabletop role-playing game historian. Yes. Um, and author. And author, yes. And he's done uh, – he brought a lot of his own things. They did a lot of research. They found stuff. Uh, it's all very fascinating, and it goes, like I said, from the beginning, and it traces each kind of iteration of Dungeons & Dragons, what it was like in each uh, decade, and not just the art from inside the books, but the advertising materials, the yeah. video games, anything. There's a there's a piece in there that you worked on, Shelley. Yes, an ad. An advertisement? An advertisement. We'll let you figure out which one it is. Yeah. Um, but it's one. really good. It's so Did good. you write the copy on it? I might have informed the copy in You're, some way. You gave birth to the copy. I probably edited the copy. Oh, I see. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so very exciting. A great interview. I feel like we covered uh, so many different topics. And uh, could have, we will have them come could back. Have, could have gone on We could have kept talking for a long time. Yeah. We really could have. I had to cut it off after like an hour and 15. And they, it, has, it seems like a book like this should have been in the works for like a decade. Right. And it was two years from start to from the idea to it being on yourself. That's pretty amazing. I and think so. Consider. It's available, as I said, right now um, for only 50 bucks. Get it. Yeah. There's a special Great edition version that has uh, some extra bells and whistles, uh, yeah. never before seen stuff on it. Really so if nice art in there. If you're interested in that, uh, check that out. The uh, um, Hydro 74 did the cover uh, yeah, for that as well, awesome. which is pretty sweet. Uh, it's kind of like a clamshell cover. So it's you get the book, cool. but then you also get like a a carrying case for it with yes. all the extras in it. Yes. Uh, very attractive looking. And you get some extra pieces of art that you can hang up. Yeah. And it's a great way to, uh, you know, be knowledgeable about the history of Dungeons & Dragons. You will discover all sorts of things you never knew. Exactly. Uh, so go check it out. Uh, we will be doing a... Uh, uh, of course, our segment, and then get to the interview uh, and and talk to them and learn a lot more. But yes. uh, in the meantime, it's out now. 
Uh, Get it. So do it. Um, we also have a bunch of other stuff coming out this month. I'm afraid we do. Or next month, rather, in November. Yep. Uh, I don't want to go through it all again. Well, you can get access on Allies and Zombies this week. What? It's yes. out now? October 26th. Sweet. So it's coming out this week. All right. right? And then Betrayal Legacies November coming up soon. November 9th. We got uh, Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, November 2nd in game stores. Uh, we got ABCs and 123s of D&D, which is perfect for any kind of uh, parent who's looking for a kid's book that's actually fun to read. Super fun. Um, that's uh, out on November 13th. We've got the uh, Core Rulebook gift set, which is about all the Core Rulebooks in one little gifts. thing. Um, there are two versions of that. The exclusive covers going to game stores uh, is also designed by Hydro74 and super attractive. Beautiful. Go check those out. Those covers are stunning. We got Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, uh, Maps and Miscellany. Oh, um, I saw that today, actually. That's on November 13th. You Chris can find Lindsay that. Lindsay has a copy of that. Dungeon Mayhem is the thing that's coming out. Yeah. A fantastic card game to get people into the game. Uh, the youngsters and the more advanced players. Yeah, it's for families. It's like for Easy to learn, hard to master. Great party game. Yeah. Pick that up. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, we got uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist Dice. Uh, which Stocking stuffer. Very... Stocking stuffer esque. Uh, the cool thing about that, there's a hit, po- hit point tracker. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, good stuff. Um, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, November 9th, core release. That should be pretty cool. We'll talk more about that in the segment you're about to listen to, uh, which is a lore you should know. Uh, and then there's a dice set with that, as well as more maps and miscellany. Oh my gosh. TwitchCon's coming up. Yep. I'm going to be there uh, with a lot of our, the authors that we're talking to right now, as well as other folks. Uh, watch all the programming all weekend long. That's October 26th, 27th, and 28th. Yep. From sunny San Jose, California, we'll be broadcasting live from the Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic Arena booth. Nice. Um, on the D&D Twitch channel, so check it out there. And I then will. If you're a Dice Camera action fan, if you like Chris Perkins and his musical stylings. Who doesn't? You can go to the official Twitch uh, channel and watch him performing with the Waffle Crew. 2 p.m. Pacific time on that's, 2.30. That's big time. P.m. Pacific time uh, on that Sunday, the 28th. So really excited there because we've got amazing guests. Felicia Day, uh, who uh, I've spoken to before but never actually met. So I'm excited to see uh, her get back into playing some Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. We have WWE superstar Xavier Woods. Love it. Uh, we'll be there playing Dungeons and Dragons in costume. Oh, my God. Uh, which is very exciting. And, of course, we got Vivid Vivka, who will be performing uh, in costume, and Malik Forte, a uh, host from eSports as well as uh, The Nerdist. He will be also in costume as a character. That's a lot. Not to mention Benjamin Looms doing uh, live broadcast background music from Sirenscape. Uh, with oh, stuff that that's he really cool. himself has composed and he will be taking cues from what's going on on stage and weaving He's in, kind of a genius. Uh, so that's an it. audio landscape, right? And he can sing opera. He can sing opera. Yeah. I don't know if he'll be singing opera during but that, maybe but it'll be going on. But he might be so right? inclined to. And there's also some great stuff uh, with extensions and things like that. If you like Dund- uh, D&D Beyond uh, and streaming, you might be able to integrate those two things into one. Uh, but we'll, we'll be showing that off uh, on that live stream as okay. well. Okay. Right. Extra Life is going strong. Uh, get your T-shirt at hoodie, uh, dnd.wizards.com slash extra life. Uh, anything uh, you donate will benefit the Seattle Children's Hospital or uh, any hospital in the Children's Miracle Network, uh, as you so choose. We got lots going on. November 3rd is uh, a game day. Shelly's going to play. 
I am. She's raised $4 million. Hopefully we can get that up to Four $5 million million. by the yeah. end. Yeah. Uh, do it. Go to her page. Uh, I have a page. I'll be playing with the Clerical Error group uh, cool. on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific time. I'm not playing a wizard. I know. This is so strange. But I love my character. Cool. Can't wait to hear more about it. He's so cute. Dragon Plus is, I uh, got a new issue, just came out last week. It's fantabulous and uh, has all kinds of fun stuff, including previews of Dungeon of the Mad Mage, uh, a cartoon from Jason Thompson, um, magic cards as D&D items, which I think is a really Ooh. cool feature for those of you who are anticipating Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica coming out, as well as an interview with a little person named Rob Davio. Oh, I know him. Yeah. He's about a game, game legacy. That's right. And Scott Van Essen is in there as well, talking about access and alleys and zombies. He's a really good guy, that Scott Van Essen. He's very happy. He's 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 good. He's good. Good uh, people. We've I mentioned this a few times on D and D news, uh, which I do uh, the hour before Dice Gary Irish goes live. Uh, but there's a D and D calendar. Did you know that? All... Is it like the Men of D and D? No, <laughs> it should be like the fireman's. Uh, uh, yes, thing. can I be there with my sweater can, vest? Yes, and be like, hello. You'd have to have nice a sweater to meet vest. Ya. You could um, raise money for Extra Life that way. And that's all right. Next year, we're putting it on the list. Come on! Uh, but there is a D and D calendar for 2019, which has a whole bunch of artwork from the first couple of years of D and D Fifth Edition. Cool. Uh, so it's up on my daughter's wall right now with a mm-hmm. healthy-looking demogorgon screaming. I love that. Uh, from the cover of, um, in your of Out of the Abyss. I know. I was like, do you want this? She's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, she does. Good for her. Um, there's lots of great uh, things happening from WizKids. Uh, they're bringing out a uh, bunch of figures, but the one that people might be really excited about, which I have on my desk and I can't wait to show more people, is the Spell Effect miniatures. Well, oh, So they're these yes, clear plastic things that. with like fireballs, magic missiles, oh, uh, ice walls, firewalls, things like that. <laughs> Darn uh, it. That you want to have represented in every single D&D game yes, and now you, you finally do. can. That's such a good idea. Yeah, I know. I've, everybody I know who loves playing with miniatures have been asking me about these. So. Did you know also that WizKids is making a deluxe um, character cards for Betrayal at House on the Hill? I did not know that. They're beautiful. They have all new character art. And they have dials. So you have these beautiful deluxe character Finally. cards, double-sided. So all of 12 of the characters are represented. And it comes with an, a new set of dice oh. that are the green and gold that kind of match the house color. Great. I know. Super cool. That comes out in December. I want to go there and get, and use it. Do you play with those things? Can I? Well, let's play a game and we can use them. Sweet. Uh, well, we talk all about Art and Arcana uh, uh, during this interview, but also one thing I want to make sure you know about is Beetle and Grimm's uh, oh, yeah. platinum edition of Waterdeep Dragon Heist. It's got tons of high-quality maps, miniatures, as I just mentioned, from WizKids, uh, original artwork, a DM screen, some coins, tokens, badges, things that will uh, you can use as props in your game and level it up uh, to the nines. Oh, wow. So that's available now at BeelandGrims.com. There's a lot. My God. There's just so much. Um, but I think, uh, what's what's going on in your life, Shelly? We haven't really talked about you. So I tried, we, Bart and I tried to watch um, The Haunting at, I always want to call it Betrayal at the Hill. <laughs> the Haunting at Hill House? Is that what it's called? I don't know. The Netflix series. Do you know, Ryan, what this is? Haunting at, at Hill House. Anyway. We can't watch it. <laughs> it's just too scary. Like it's not even. It might not even be scary, but we just get so scared about the thought of being scared that we're like, uh, like we watched three and a half minutes. We we're like, no, you're like I'm out. Let's watch Modern Family. 
we can't do this. That, that's scary too, though. That Some, show, the Halloween episodes. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> really, Ooh. the haunting of Hill House. Oh, okay, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, no, I I, I bounce off of horror. Uh, so. I want to. I want to watch it so bad. But I really like Halloween. Is that strange? No. Yeah. I mean, generally, just like Halloween, when you take your kids to, up to the business, right? It's area mostly just the candy. Trick or treat. I just like the you just the, like the candy. chocolate really because you can't get candy any other time of year other than Halloween. It doesn't exist. There are no Snickers or Butterfingers. They just don't, you can't just get them. in October. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's like, the, it's like their crop just so pops up. you must buy them. Buy them early. Buy That's them true. often. <laughs> yes. Stockpile. Yes. For the zombie apocalypse that's coming from. We're going to give away Skittles and nerds because I don't like them. You're like, whatever nerds. Whatever. You, here's a nerd pack of nerds for you nerds. <laughs> we don't even get trick-or-treaters, but. You don't like the, the um, fruity candy? No, so that's what I always choose to give away because yeah. I want it to still be good, desirable candy, which people seem important. to like Skittles and Starburst. You, you and, have you know, to ha- assert your status in the neighborhood. I do not want to be the house that, that like, gives, gives away, away crap. a penny. But we're, we're never going to be the house that gives away Kit Kats, Butterfingers. Because then you'll just eat them up. Reese's Cups. Oh, <gasps> God, they're so good. All right, this has been a podcast for What's Halloween your candy. candy. I like all those things you just mentioned the chocolate ones. The chocolate ones, so you're mostly. Not like a, Starburst nerds guy? No, I don't like the fruity stuff as much. I, Sour Patch Kids? No. It's so gross. That's Erin. Erin likes that stuff. Really? Yeah, she like loves the gummies and that uh, 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 kind of fruity stuff. Yeah, I'm no. always like, no, give me the chocolate. Give it to me all. Don't want it. Bring it. All right, so we don't talk about any candy uh, in this segment, but I think it's still important for you but to listen to. But it's still super sweet. Yeah, so let's listen to some Laurie Chanel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Lore You Should Know. Uh, accent on the lore there for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, because I, I will not be doing that. No, <laughs> you won't be doing any <laughs> no. any uh, uh, accents on the lore. Well, the, one of the guilds that we're going to be talking <laughs> about is very lore-centric, right? Uh, well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. All right. Uh, so I'm Greg Tito, and uh, this is uh, Mr. Ari Levich. It is. It is. All right, good. And uh, today in this segment where we talk about little bits of lore that you can bring into uh, your Dungeons & Dragons game or just for the fun of knowing it, uh, we're going to delve further into the guilds of Ravnica uh, in support of Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, which is coming out everywhere November 20th um, and uh, will be in game stores uh, 11 days before that. That's November 9th. Uh, so look for it. Um, but it is the first major product in which you can play Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game within the world of Ravnica from Magic the Gathering. It's pretty surreal to roll up characters like that, uh, choosing a guild and kind of just creating characters on D&D, using a D&D character sheet and seeing all the, the Ravnica kind of jargon is pretty fun. Right, because you have been a uh, writer for uh, and game designer for the Magic side of yeah. things. Yeah, and so coming into the Dungeons and Dragons world, it's they're all colliding. Everything's being great. Uh, we've done uh, two episodes of Laurie Should Know, two segments of Laurie Should Know on uh, previous guilds, yeah. and today we're going to delve into uh, two uh, new ones, uh, and they are Azorius and Boros. That's correct. Uh, that's not their full names, but... Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but there's a reason I chose uh, those two. And last time I was here, uh, we were talking about two different... We talked about kind of grouping guilds in these kind of... Um, pairings? Yeah, these kind of pairings. Um, they're kind of like 
you know, two sides of a, of a coin. Uh, we talked about the Simic and the Izzet being these science-oriented guilds, and you know, we talked about the Selesnia and Golgari being very much their relationship with nature and life. And so we're starting with the Azorius and the Boros today um, because uh, these are the two guilds that are really responsible for maintaining kind of peace and order uh, on the streets because when you have a much, you know, this giant plane-spanning uh, metropolis – uh, that Ravnica is, uh, things can get chaotic. And uh, so um, these are the two guilds that very much have taken it upon themselves to make sure that uh, peace is kind of the uh, status quo, even though it's very difficult. Um, hmm. So I want to talk about what separates them, and then I'm going to dive into into the two guilds. So okay. the, the big way we, we think about them, or we thought about them when I was on the, uh, the Magic team, was the Azorius being very much the letter of the law and the Boros being very much the spirit of the law. Oh. And so what that means is, well, the Azorius, is, their full name is the Azorius Senate. And because they're the ones that also make the laws, they really take the letter of the law very seriously. Um, and so uh, the Azorius, their structure, their guild structure is very much, they have, or they're broken down into what are called three columns. And uh, I wrote it down just to make sure I get the columns correct. Nice. Um, so you have the, the Jelen column, which is the column that is responsible for creating the laws themselves. You have the Liev column, which is responsible for enforcing them. And you have the Sova column, which is responsible for if, if the laws are being challenged, they serve as the judges uh, and so on. So you kind of have like, they kind of mirror the three branches of government kind of thing. They're not necessarily the official government on Ravnica, but they serve many of those functions. Mm. Um, and so if you're a, if you're a player, uh, you know, who is interested in being part of the Azorius, you might be drawn to this notion of being a beat cop, of going <laughs> around, uh, you know, in the streets, kind of working your beat and maintaining the peace. Or you might like the idea, see, part of the Azorius is they, you know, they create these, they have this huge bureaucracy that is attached to this kind of, you know, lawmaking body, and it could be overwhelming. There's kind of this Kafka-esque experience of going through one of the administration buildings. But if you're part of the Azorius, you know how to navigate all of that. So there's this kind of fun notion that in all of this, you are kind of at home. Hmm. Um, but they're, they're big deal. I mean, if you, are, if you are a player who is interested in this, you are probably part of the Liev column. You are probably serving as an arrester if you wanted to be like a fighter or, or a paladin, or you might be one of these law mages, uh, these things called law mages, which basically um, uh, the law itself, the, um, the, the writing of the law itself is imbued with magic, and the law mages of the Azorius can actually draw upon that power. Uh, so if you're a wizard, um, you might be a wizard of the, of the school of enchantment or abjuration who might protect you know, your other cops in the streets or kind of... If, if there are arresters kind of making a bust, you might protect the citizens to stop more collateral damage, that kind of a thing. I love that the, uh, the authority figures or the people who are doing, you know, the execution of the law, they're called the arresters. Yeah, the arresters. Yeah. yeah. What do they do? They arrest. They arrest. Yeah. Keep the peace by arresting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Azorius themselves, they, they'll have... Azorius prisons, those that are arrested by arresters and then gone through kind of the legal system. Um, they might be put in prison. Um, they, they have, the, you know, these Azorius prisons. Um, but there's this, there's this kind of fun thing you could do if you're an Azorius party of being kind of a police precinct mm. or, you know, um, uh, sorry, I've been watching a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so now that's where my brain goes. Now no I want worries. to play an Azorius thing. But you could, you could pretty much you could imagine a, um, a, an Azorius party that is very much that in, in that vein. 
that they're uh, they're they're happy go lucky and uh, wanting to and everything make everyone works laugh. Out. Yeah. yeah, everything works out in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right, I can see that. Yeah, uh, is that the tenor of the guild though, or did they? Yeah, is that going against type a little bit? Uh, it's probably going against type a little bit, but you know, n- nothing is monolithic. You know, you play the characters you want to play, but there is a sense that overall the Azorius take themselves very seriously. They are they very much believe that chaos is poison to civilization. And they are very much the guild against chaos. So, excuse me. Um, yeah, they believe that laws are kind of the bulwark against chaos, that executing those laws is the only way civilization will, will survive. And, you know, we're talking about a civilization that has existed for more than 10,000 years. So to them, they're like, that's just evidence that we're right. We're doing you know? it right. Yeah, so... Um, you know, at their best, they are those kind of peacekeepers. They are those. Uh, they are. They're maintaining this this a sense of order uh, on the streets of Ravnica. At worst, they can become. They are the tendency of the burdensome law, the dispassionate law that has that doesn't really take into account the citizenry itself. It kind of exists for its own sake and can become a police state. Um, so, you know, the other guilds always kind of keep them in check. And again, pe- members of the Azorius may also be aware of these tendencies and put laws to keep themselves in check and so on and so on and so on. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned that they're not the government per se of of the uh, entire plane of Ravnica that is a, a city and then of these guilds kind of fill up, you know, a lot of that. But so what uh, w- what is the government of 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 Ravnica in general? So I mean the, the main structure really comes back to the power of the guild pact. Uh, that's that magical kind of contract that, you know, 10,000 years ago, uh, the different uh, heads of the different uh, – the parents of the guilds signed this thing. basically maintains balance between, between the guilds themselves. Uh, but day-to-day functions still have to happen. And originally, the guilds had more civic functions that ev- eventually kind of evolved into their own um, – kind of their own societies to a degree. Like uh, last week, we talked about the Golgari, and the Golgari – main Golgari function was to kind of – maintain, uh, kind of, honestly, like, pick up the trash and make sure that, you know, sanitation things were taking, get, getting taken care of. And so in that vein, the Azorius had their function of administering, uh, the, uh, administering the city. The laws. The, yeah, the, the, the government exactly. city, right? But um, th- there's not, people don't just defer to the Azorius to, to rule, however. So it's not just like, the, you know, the, the Azorius are the ones on top at the moment. Um, it's more that they fill a lot of the administrative functions. I see. They create the bureaucracy that yeah. allows yep. the rest of the, the guilds to exist. Yep. Okay. Um, what uh, Are there very different types of people that join the like three little branches, like the Senate and the other areas? Um, so the, the, the main races that are associated with, uh, with the Azorius are humans and Vidalkin. <clears throat> Excuse me, and they may be interspersed uh, throughout all, the, or all, three, all three columns. So D&D players will be familiar with humans. Clearly, right, but Vidalkin is, is is somewhat new. Yeah, Vidalkin. Uh, we we talked about them with the Simic, but for those who who didn't catch that one, uh, <laughs> the Vidalkin are one of the races that uh, are new to D anD D, and they are kind of note, noted by their their blue skin and kind of absence of hair, and um, they are they are very um, they're very logic based, and they tend to be very studious and detail oriented, which is perfect for the Azorius. So if you are a Vidalkin, if you're interested in playing a Vidalkin and the uh, Azorius appeals to you, you will, you have created a perfect match, um, and you will play. You can play two type with that very, uh, very well. Um, Makes sense. And 
like I mentioned before, most player characters will probably fall into the Liev column, being a rester or a law mage, because by nature you are out in the city as opposed to behind a desk. But it's interesting, there, uh, there's also a group, uh, uh, um, there's a role called Elocutor, and the Elocutor are these kind of orators that will kind of, uh, they, might, they might be emissaries or they might address, uh, they might be in a court and, and address, you know, an, an audience or a jury. And they're just great speakers. So if you are um, if you are a bard and you want to be part of like the College of Lore, this might be a good fit for you there. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then uh, you know maybe uh, you won't have a lot of judges, right? <laughs> uh, in your in your in your group, and not initially. Uh, one of the fun parts about um, about the book is there's we're playing with the renown system, and so you know you start as your you know you're a guild member. But as you do more for your guild, you can build renown in your guild, and that gives you more. Uh, it gives you you rise in the ranks of that one. So at some point, you can become an arbiter or a judge, or an arbiter actually being you know in charge of a column. But you may be you, you might become one of the judges, and all the power that you can wield with that as well. Nice. So there's a, a progression there. You yeah. can start as a lower level, uh, uh, you know, MOOC in the Azor- right. Azoria Senate and then work your way up. And there's and, a clear path. And every guild has that kind of renown system. Some are more hierarchical. Like when we talk about the Boros, it's very kind of a military hierarchy. And we'll get into that. Some are flatter. We talked about the Selesnia last, uh, last time. And instead of necessarily rising in the ranks, you might uh, uh, get enough renown to fill a specialized role mm. in, in, in the guild. So the uh, Azorius Senate, uh, as you said, um, wh- where wh- what kind of spaces do they live in? Like, what 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 do they have architecture that kind of feels, you know, what what the, the, indicative of what their guild is? Yeah, uh, most guilds kind of have a look feel that's associated with them, both in costuming and architecture. Um, it, for magic, that that just fell out of being able to identify cards across the table from each other. Right. But what it really ended up doing is, is it created, uh, it really helped solidify the identity of, of all, all these guilds. And so with the Azorius, you're going to notice a lot of kind of white marble structures with a lot of blue accents. Um, there are a lot of steps and there are a lot of little hallways because there's a sense of always having to get to the next thing, the sense of bureaucracy, even kind of being built into their architecture. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna see that with like with Selesnya last week. There's a lot of the intersection of curated gardenscapes with a lot of um, right. kind of marble architecture as well. So every guild kind of has their own their own look feel. And Azorius uh, feels very much like um, uh, neoclassical, I yeah. guess, right? Like the idea that like oh, here's the columns and flutes that you might see in a Greek building, but more you know. E- even taking that further, there's always going to be that sense of uh, it-, it looks functional. So it's not necessarily going to be as ornament as as ornament heavy, um, but it is going to be like this is made for a purpose, and cause, because why would you do it in any other way? Its beauty is you know is in its function. So, um, but even then, there's a way to. It still feels like it's part of Ravnica. Like nothing, none of the guilds have something that really feels like it's not part of Ravnica, with a, perhaps the exception being the Gruul, who live in ruins and stuff. We'll, who we'll talk about. We'll get but, to them. Yeah. Uh, all right, so if you were going to play as an Azorius member, uh, is it, you know, obviously lawful is an alignment that makes a lot of sense, but are there characters that you could say are chaotic uh, within them? Uh, I, probably. Uh, I mean, you could, you could make the argument for, for any... I mean, one of the, the fascinating things about Ravnica is that nobody is born into their guild, right? You choose your guild. Right. But you may choose for any number of reasons. I may be chaotic good, uh, but I'm getting pressured... 
you know, my, both my parents were Azorius and just, I'm, I'm here. It may not be the best fit, but here I am. And there's a story to tell, right? Why, why am I this chaotic good person in the Azorius? Most people in the Azorius are lawful in some way, right? The, to them, chaos is the greatest bad. Got it. So, um, but it doesn't mean you can't have chaotic characters in there. It just, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be weird for you. <laughs> you got to acknowledge that you're kind of playing against exactly. what the, the tenants are yeah. for whatever reason, whether you're, you're, you know, your boyfriend or girlfriend joined the Azorius and you're like, I'm going to join too. But if you're, I mean, you might be the hot shot, you know, rogue cop or whatever. Right. It's like, cool. All right. All right. So there's tropes face there. You're but Andy Samberg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, anything else you wanted to touch on the Azorius? Um, let me just check my notes. I think I think we're good. Uh, oh. I could talk actually uh, one last little bit if you're if you're not familiar with them. Uh, the guild is the guild uh, master is a a sphinx, Esperia, uh, oh. and uh, yeah, she is not the parent, so that means she's not the original, uh, the founder of the guild. Um, she is the the current guild master. What and, uh, what can you tell me about her? Um, so she's somebody who didn't necessarily seek out this position. This was kind of something that had that found her she was the most capable judge uh at the time and she has kind of risen to that she's not she's not the most personable character sphinxes kind of aren't um that's that holds true in ravnica uh but her wisdom as a judge is uh is kind of legendary uh so she has been she's taken up the mantle to be uh to be the leader and uh, those of you who are familiar with the the card set this is somebody who we have seen in the original uh, card set for Ravnica, came back and returned to Ravnica as well. That's oh, that's cool. Used. Yeah. So it's a long, it's a long yep. uh, uh, a character with a long history. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there sphinxes a lot in in Ravnica? Is that a common? Yeah. So uh, yeah, there are sphinxes in Ravnica, and those that are associated with the guild tend to to be associated with the Azorius. It's not a hundred percent. Some are ungilded and are just you know just sphinxes, but. Um, yeah, they are. They tend to be associated with uh, with the Azorius. Oh, I didn't know there was an ungilded. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Again, joining a guild is a choice, and not everybody is. But you're not forced to join. Nope. Anyone. You nope. Could... Yeah, you could. You could just be. You could be ungilded. Uh, the colloquial term in world is the gateless because they have no guild gate that they step through to go into their guild. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk about uh, the Boros. So the Boros are kind of the other peacekeeping um, guild on Ravnica, and they're much more kind of military in structure, but they are less about the letter of the law. They believe that justice is the highest good. So that means sometimes you may have to break the law to serve justice, which the Azorius might call garbage because justice is the law to the Azorius. But to the Boros, their whole deal, if in D&D terms, if the Azorius are against chaos, the Boros are against evil, if that makes sense. So they'll, they'll, they want to root out um, corruption. They want to root out people who exploit others or they want to defend the weak. So the Boros are very much in that kind of, uh, kind of Captain America space. Um, if you want to be the one that rushes, you know, the, the kind of the, uh, the one that rushes into the building to save the person, you know, the Boros are going to be very appealing to you. If you want to uh, hold the line against an incursion of... Uh, of, of gruel raiders coming out of the rubble belt, then, you know, the Boros are for you. Um, or if you want to kind of venture down into to the sewers, you know, as the, the knight in shining armor type thing, and you want to kind of uh, root out, you know, evil uh, in the undercity, then the Boros is also kind of going to be appealing to you. Hmm. And what, uh, uh, what kind of characters uh, generally 
gravitate towards the Boros? So uh, the Boros, in terms of races are um, that you could play, are going to be uh, humans. Minotaurs are are, oh. are are very present in the in the Boros, and occasionally goblins. Really? Yeah. How how uh, what's the goblins like on Ravnica? Um, the goblins. Uh, so the Boros are a very very much a fighty guild, but those goblins. Um, excuse me. Those goblins who have that sense of higher purpose might join <laughs> might join the Boros. So the Boros themselves are because um, in its military hierarchy are. The, at the highest ranks are the these battle angels. Uh, Aurelia, who's the guildmaster, is kind of the highest ranking among them, and they may inspire people to kind of take up the mantle, take up the cause of the Boros. And um, so, yeah, that, that may that may pull in some some wayward goblins to to join the legion. Are there uh, a lot of goblins in Ravnica? Are they? There are a numerous? lot of goblins, and a lot of goblins. Uh, though there are goblins in you know the Rakdos, there are goblins in the Izzet. Most goblins are actually guildless. Um, there are actually a bunch of like goblin gangs that also exist in uh, on the streets of Ravnica. Like oh. The um, the adventure, the introductory adventure in the book, um, actually deals with kind of one of the more famous gang leaders, uh, a goblin named Krenko. So those of you that that know know the world of Ravnica, that's that's going to be a fun treat. Oh, that is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, all right, but so so the goblins that want to be a bit her- heroic and and, and try to uh, you know, elevate their, yep. their their status and the status of those around them to uh, to justice would would go towards Boros. Yep, and, and you know they'll tend to be kind of uh, there's kind of when when battle is afoot, goblins tend to kind of get swept up in it. So they might be kind of the first to the fight. They may serve as uh, kind of forward scouts, that kind of thing. Neat. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the, the the guild leader. What's what's what are they like? Yeah, so Aurelia is is a character that uh, who who we've seen before in previous in the previous card sets. But she is this she is a battle angel. Um, what's a battle angel? Uh, angels who do battle. Oh, yeah. All right. So like uh, Michael the Archangel. I, I suppose. Uh, right? Is that the the trope, or yeah. is it more? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, but. There are different kind of classes of angels um, that that show up here. Uh, there are um, war leaders, which is what Aurelia is, um, who will serve as you know leading large groups of soldiers. Then there are also firemen angels, which are kind of solo, kind of big beaters. That like if you need to deal with a problem, they will go deal with that problem. Send in the firemains. Yeah, yeah. Is that because they have a mane of fire? Yeah. No, all right. <laughs> The Boros are also kind of very, you know... Yeah, call it, call yeah, it what it is. Call it what it is. Not yeah. a lot of poetry there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, they're, they have this kind of military hierarchy, and it's broken down into different garrisons. And these garrisons have kind of jurisdiction over different parts of the city. And so uh, war leaders might lead, might lead these gar- larger garrisons, or humans uh, who have, or minotaurs or goblins even, who have risen to these highest ranks might be given a garrison to lead. Um, and... Like a military, there are also different specializations as you kind of rise in these ranks. So uh, most most people are going to be soldiers. So if you want to be a fighter, uh, so if you want to be like a you know a champion, or if you want to be uh, uh, if you want to be like a paladin or even an eldritch knight, because some of the, some soldiers uh, also uh, may combine their kind of martial talents with magical talents, and so this is kind of represented by paladins or uh, or eldritch knights, that kind of thing. Sweet. Um, there might, if you are a cleric of the uh, do, uh, light domain, 
you might uh, be a frontline medic. So you might serve with the soldiers to kind of make sure that everybody's going to make it through. Um, so there are all these different kind of specialized roles. So you could have a complete party. You could be a wizard who is an ev- uh, evocation wizard. And those are known as ember mages among, you know, among the Boros. Right. So you might specialize in, you know, in fire spells and lightning spells and to kind of break through an enemy line to allow kind of the soldiers, the rest of the soldiers to kind of pour through. So they've got that kind of fantasy warfare yeah, exactly. thing going on. Exactly. Right, with the angels flying. And, yep. Right. Yep. All right. I can see that. Sounds like a fun, you know, uh, uh, easy in for storytelling. Absolutely. I mean, you can imagine the idea of a, a party being a squad. Right. right, and all your adventures or your your initial adventures could start from you know your commanding officer sending you on missions. You got to go do it. That's it, yeah. and then you know things can kind of unfold from there. Meanwhile, you know your your commanding officer is a minotaur. That's right. Yeah, or you're a minotaur. Or you're I'm, all minotaurs. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. You're a group of minotaurs yep. fighting everything. Uh, all right, all else sounds really cool. What? Uh, uh, anything else on on Boros? Um, just the thing about them is you know if you're if you're if you are drawn to them, it's the idea of you are, you know, really much, you very much believe that you are doing what is right. You are driven by this sense of justice. Um, Boros, as the villain, can sometimes be the one that, who can be blind to a bigger picture, mm. that they can be directed to attack an enemy where they don't have necessarily all the pieces. And so they could be, uh, sometimes they may, they, you know, they may occupy part of the city because they think they're doing, they're doing they're doing good or protecting from, you know, a larger incursion, but they may be doing more harm. So as a villain, uh, there, you could have a little bit more nuance with, you know, the knight in shining armor trope. What is this kind of military force that might, that might show up? Do you, are they easily manipulated as um, well they, for that reason? They can be. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely can be. I mean, they're driven by this sense, by this sense of passion to do what is right, and that, is, that could be misguided. Yeah, or it can shift. Or it can shift, on, okay, yeah. Okay, that was great yesterday, but now— you know, all these people will die from reactions. Yeah. Nuance makes that very complicated. The more complicated a situation gets, the harder it is to just say, this is the right course and do that. Right. But when you have a military structure, they have to say, this is the way it is, you know, and kind of go pursue that. So, you know. These really are two of the, the, the same coin. You're totally right. They're like the flip sides of, of how, uh, what justice and, and morality even really mean. Absolutely. And so that's a fun thing. I mean, you might have, you might have characters in the Boros who left the Azorius or vice versa, you know, because oh. these things, again, none, none of this is permanent uh, when you join a guild. Nothing, nothing is baked in. You're not born into any of these. So there, there's this, there is this notion of changing guilds as well as a thing that is possible. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. we'll have to delve into that. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Ari. If people wanted to get in touch with you and ask you more uh, detailed, lower questions about Ravnica, how could they do that? Uh, so right now I'm on Twitter uh, at Winnemall, W-I-N-N-E-M-A-L-L. I love that you say right now. Like, are you, gonna, are you changing that? I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we'll see. I guess right now and for forever. You're changing yeah. your guild again. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Well, awesome. Uh, I love taking these dives into what's happening uh, in Ravnica uh, in anticipation for Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. Uh, again, it comes out on uh, November 9th in game stores, so look for it there. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to learn more. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. I just got that uh, what you said in the intro that it's sweet and that's why segway yeah that was pretty good because Ari is sweet I don't think anybody who's listening to that entire segment is going to come back to this and know what we're talking about but maybe 
you listening at home who were thinking about what Shelly said, yep. now you'll know. So I think there's something important we should note about our upcoming interview. What's that? That if you're listening to the audio version, you might want to go back sometime when you have time and watch the archive on Twitch because Why? there is a lot of visual stuff that comes up. There is. Remember? Ah. There was a lot of like holding up pages of the book and then at one point John had those little fingers. It had nothing to do with the scary things. Nope. Nope. But I think you need to. Oh, ha. That was it. I'm like legit mean. Like there we did have a There lot was of, a lot of visuals. A lot of visual stuff. It's true. Right. Uh because and then there will be in the interview that you're going but to hear also, right now. But also and people should see that's what I mean. Yeah. And people people what? <laughs> People need Time to travel see. is hard. We people were talking past also, tense, but it's people haven't listened to it yet. I know, but I heads up <laughs> when you're done listening to this, go back and watch it on Twitch and and your sweater vest. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> people should be able to see your sweater vest. Guys, I'm wearing a sweater vest. It's very. I think they can tell um, from the tone of your voice. That was oh, that was so um, uh, bookish in the way I'm talking. Well, yes. I'm talking to, about books today. I'm Speaking of talk. books, let's listen to what four other people have to say about books, shall mm. we? You sound like Kelsey Grammer. Oh dear, we are in <laughs> Seattle, you know. <laughs> Ham and eggs. <laughs> Uh, we have Mr. John Peterson. Woo! Hi, John. Welcome. I've uh, been on the show before. We talked about uh, the lost radio episode of Dungeons & Dragons. Very excited to have you back. Uh, we have Mr. Kyle Newman. Yay! He's in a box. <laughs> you can speak. You don't have to not say anything. <laughs> this whole interview will be pantomime. I'm, I'm experiencing this in, in a new dimension now, the video dimension. I'm so, I'm so used to hearing you guys speak. I'm thankful for being on. It's good to be here. Awesome. Good to have you. Uh, we have Michael Whitware. Hello. Woo-hoo! Hello. It, uh, is, it is an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. And Mr. Sam Whitware. Yo! Hey, hey, hey. How's everyone doing? Hello. Many people might know you as playing uh, uh, Morden Kanan, I think is your most uh, popular role. That is <laughs> the one that has brought me the most accolades, correct? It's true. You've got Emmys. You're working on an EGOT. It's going to happen. Uh, right. So the four of you all work together on a little book. I say little, uh, ironically, because it's quite large. Uh, called Art and Arcana. A uh, yeah. How would you how would you describe this book to someone who had knew nothing about it? Well, I mean, um, this is Michael again, and it's uh, it's a visual history. Um, so it's not just an art book, although it is chock full of art. It has more than seven hundred individual panels. Um, but it's a visual history of the entire brand of Dungeons and Dragons from from the very beginning all the way to present day, uh, and it really covers the brand as told through its visuals, i.e., its art, its ephemera, its advertising, and beyond. So it's a pretty comprehensive look at the brand. And it's been been a lot of fun to do. Nice. How long have you guys been working on it, Kyle? Kyle, when did we first talk? Our whole lives. That's the correct. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a culmination <laughs> of a lot. Uh, we officially started talking about it, I would say, what, just over two years ago, circa the, what was the stream of, um, stream of Annihilation? That's right. Stream right around that time. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I'd read Michael's book. I was super inspired. I was back playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and I was like, Where, where's a good art book? Yeah. Oh, there are none. So I, I was like, why don't we do something in this space? And uh, like I said, I was a fan of Michael's and, I reached out to him with this idea that there needs to be something comprehensive. Uh, let's try and get as close to definitive as possible. And uh, let's explore the whole thing, all 40-something plus years. And 
that started there. We didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but that's when our, our party expanded immediately with both John and Sam. Sam was a, a longtime friend. That's how I actually was connected to Michael. I'm a big Star Wars fan and a big fan of Sam's. And uh, Sam wanted to join the party. And John, being maybe the preeminent expert on this entire subject globally, uh, was <laughs> a, a no-brainer inclusion. So I felt like we had a pretty complete group. And uh, what we've all come to realize is this book wouldn't have been what it is without, I think, all of our different perspectives. And it allowed it to look at it in different layers, more than just one person. This is what I think it is. We were able to vet it, test it, talk about it, explore it, and then put forth uh, the text in the book, which is a history. I just want to make that clear to people. It's not just a bunch of visuals. This is uh, also a a book you want to have during the holidays, sit by, by a fire, blast your midnight syndicate, and uh, read the Art Narcotta book on the history of this brand because it's awesome. You, you just created about like, you know, 50 different plans for people to be like, I'm going to go up in a cabin, bring this yeah. book, <laughs> sip some brandy. Bring anything else. Yeah. The book is enormous. <laughs> that's right. That's all you can read. And worthwhile. That's all you need. Uh, so, John, you've been doing a lot of, you know, D&D history work for a long time. What was it about this project that uh, excited you? Well, I mean, I do a lot of uh, very dusty kind of archival work about the history of D&D and being able to look at it with the fresh eyes of what what is the story of the art itself. Um, in my previous book, Playing at the World, I didn't really write much about who the artists were. Um, really, I was only focused on the first couple of years of the game. So that, that's a bit of, you know, limits the scope of that a bit. But even those initial artists, people like Greg Bell or Kenan Powell or Cookie Corey, you know, these were people we really knew a lot about. And so just that process of, of researching, learning who those people were, looking at the, the business dimension of how they got these artists, of the fact that you would only get paid uh, $2, you know, per illustration for the original 1974 OD&D booklet, because that, that's all they had budget for. And so they, they turned then to that neighborhood kids, you know, friends of Gaiax's daughter or, um, you know, his sister-in-law, like anybody they could get to just kind of pitch things in. Often people without a lot of background really in this and, um, you know, got kind of ta talented uh, uh, doodlers, really. And, you know, being able to take it from that all the way through the, the glorious days of the 80s, the Elmores, the Easleys, you know, up to the present, up to Tyler and like what's going on today. Mm -hmm. um, that was just completely fresh eyes for me. That is super cool. So how I've, I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. Um, but let's start with this. So how – first of all, I don't think two years seems like enough time for you guys to have made this book. This book is incredible. Uh, and I'm so glad it exists and I'm glad that you guys did it because it seems like a lot of work. Yeah, I have a I've strong, always wanted this book to exist. I have a strong memory of, 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 of Sam and the rest of you guys coming up into the office and getting your, your excitement of seeing all of the artwork. And that picture in front of Mitzi is in the book, which I love. Well, yeah, let me, let me chime in on and just, yeah, the, the, the scope is, is pretty important here. And actually, us coming into the office is a pretty relevant part of that story, right? Working directly with Wizards as an official licensed product. So with Wizards as our partner, I mean, the book would have been impossible without that agreement, not just because we had to print uh, IP that, that belongs to Wizards of the Coast, but because uh, your archive is is, is extraordinary. You know, there was so much to work with. So anytime we needed something, uh, at least past a certain point, again, there's some very early stuff. When you get, you know, before 1985, uh, we had to do some real digging in what we call archaeology. <laughs> yeah, but, um but, but after that, you know, point, you know, we could, we could email Jefferson Dunlap for just about anything, and he would be, he'd come through and, and find it and and uh, pull it out of the archive. So that was a pretty cool part. But the other part that I think is important to that that story is, 
this notion that, you know, John has been been digging uh, deep in the tombs of, of D&D history now for what, uh, going on 15 years, I think. Uh, and myself, I started uh, my project, Empire of Imagination, in 2012. So what does that give me? Roughly six years in process. So what it became was a process of really adapting a lot of these research methods we had already been working on mm. and then figuring out we need to look for art. I mean, John and I used to joke about the fact if we had only knew, known we were going to do a, an art project sometime in the future, all the, th- the questions we could have asked, all the art we could have gotten when we were thinking about it, it's just it wasn't what we were working on at the time. So that was a lot of it. But then, bring, you know, uh, having um, this balanced party we talk about, right, bringing in John, you know, Kyle and I decided we needed a magic user. So let's bring in John Peterson. We needed <laughs> a barbarian. That. So let's bring in my brother, Sam Whitworth. Um, yes. <laughs> you bashed down the doors to find the artwork that was necessary. Yeah. Well, and, and when you have four authors, now all of a sudden you can effectively in two years write a book that would otherwise take one author eight years if you think of it that way. Yeah, so but, that was kind of the, the process. But with four of you, did you guys have like certain roles within the book? Like you're going to handle this section, you're going to handle this era, or how did you guys break it out? We did. We did. <clears throat> we uh, we at first broke up chunks of D&D history, like we gave like eras or years, and uh, and we broke those up. I think I was... I'm not going to say who was where because we all chimed in and everyone else, but like, but beyond that, also we had different turf that we covered as far as the spirit of the entire project. Um, you know, you had John making sure that we didn't say something that was inaccurate because he is, as Kyle says, the foremost <laughs> <laughs> historian and we didn't want to get the history wrong. Um, Kyle being a director is very visual. So we wanted a very beautiful, visually stunning book so he he kind of took the lead on those things and um michael and me were in in a weird way the the player fans Mm -hmm. um michael already having written a book on dungeons and dragons and empire of imagination the book about gary gygax he um he was kind of the guy who kept us all on task and kind of pushed the whole project forward and divvied out assignments and all this stuff and i was the guy that was weirdly actually there in the early days of D&D playing. So I'd be like, well, I remember this, and I remember that it was like this at the time. And so, yeah, it's very strange to to figure out where all our strengths were and divide up those. those uh, very cool. There are those layers. There are experiential layers. That's, I think, what Sam would talk about. I remember this art, and I remember this was, like, taught me about a mechanic, and this is what it made me feel like. And it's getting back to, like, if you're talking about cave painting or, or ceramics, they served a purpose uh, you can also talk about them as art, but what are they inherently? Mm-hmm. And it was trying to look at things like that. I remember I was playing Princes of the Apocalypse, and that was my reintroduction to Dungeons and Dragons in this edition. And I was like, this is Village of Hamlet. This is Elemental Evil. There's a story here. There's all these layers. Do people that are playing it now realize that this is a reincarnation? There's an homage. It's a reinvention. Um, and I just thought that was that was so exciting. What is it about this brand that has this durability to rise again through all these different incarnations, um, ups and downs, and still endure? What are those intrinsic values and visuals? And I think that's what we all said. We got together in Los Angeles. We met um, at my house. We had uh, stuff projected up on a, on a TV, and, and John was leading us through. We were taking turns going through what we liked. And it wasn't just about what we liked. But it was also about what was important, what was transformative, what mm. was disruptive, and why. And then that started to lead the conversation. And that conversation then had to be put in check by what what imagery we could actually track down. 
and license. And then we had a mandate to make it the best looking stuff you've ever seen. So if we could rephotograph it, we rephotograph it. If we felt like there was an, uh, a native art out there, piece of it, we wanted to hunt that down. And John and, and Michael knew a lot of people in this collector world. And, and John brought a lot from his personal collection in terms of um, documents and texts and just not non-art, which are just as important to the visual history. Right. You guys discovered the actual pages that uh, Ed Greenwood faxed to the TSR offices, right, of, of, of his uh, Forgotten Realms map. Is that true? I mean, fortunately, that was one where wizards could help us um, yeah. because that, that's kind of after that sweet spot. So things like that, actually, you guys had great picture archives. Up. That was easy for us. We were just, mm. oh, you, you guys give us that. Oh. Some of these other things, you know, are, are, are a little harder. You know, uh, Kyle was just talking about the Temple of Elemental Evil, for example, and mm. the Village of you know, that's an example of something that is from my private stash, the original kind of hand-drawn maps that Gary used to run that as a campaign at TSR in 1976, wow. back when there were really only like, you know, eight or nine people working there. That was like their office campaign then. And yeah, we want to be able to show you the visual progression, not just of the artwork, but of all of the visual things that we plug into from the game, from dice, right? I thought it was really important to show different kinds of dice throughout the years or how maps evolved or character sheets. Character sheets are something that when you see an old character sheet, if you grew up playing with sheets of that era, that just tugs your heartstrings mm-hmm. right away. Brings you back. Yeah. It brings you right back to it. And, and similarly, period advertisement, just, just the fonts, the colors, the way people are dressed. That, you know, with a role model, this is who you should feel like plays D&D and you want to be like them. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a way that brings you back into the era so quickly without us having to say a thing other than show you the picture. And, and even within this team, the, showing those things, they, they all affected us so differently. I mean, character sheets, John just mentioned that. I remember uh, when Sam got a hold of some of these really early character sheets, I remember him just kind of couldn't quite believe them because, again, Sam was our dungeon master, so... I'll let him speak for himself, but yeah. he would look at these things and, and just remark about how different they were. Yeah, I mean, people are going to... Well, I mean, one of the things about this project is that I've talked to a lot of very avid D&D players, and we'll talk about, I don't know, some aspect of the game, and they will really know their stuff. They will be completely aware of how to play that rogue that carries a magical, you know, dagger and tries to pair it with, uh, you know, this magical armor, this and that. There's a lot of... There's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff that they know about D and D. Just to be able to play D and D, you have to know some things about D and D. So I would go, hey, so like you know, what about I'd say something about Gary Gygax, and they'd say who, and I'd go, whoa, what are, what are you talking about who? And I would start talking about Dungeons and Dragons in the '90s, '80s, '70s, and they'd have no knowledge of any of these things. And so it was just <clears throat> kind of realizing that with this wonderful popular game that has no casual fans for example you know you can't be a casual <laughs> fan and play D. you have to know how to play D, and yet they have never had occasion to visit the history or know the story of how this game even came to be so really that was the the thrill of being able to to bring this story um in a really fun visual way to uh to the D audience and in some ways, it almost feels like the the kind of document that a D and D character would find about the world that they're in, right? You guys created right. this history that someone like an esoteric character could be like, "Oh, look at what they we yeah. found and we discovered," and it all goes all the way back and like learning about it. So that's why I love it about it. The visual look of this as well is that it feels like a tome that you would find in a tomb. 
And if you if you pick it up and you strike someone with it, it does one d six. Is that right, John? One d six points of damage. That's improvised. Yeah. <laughs> Out of the box yeah. It's seven point eight pounds. I think. Correct. Yeah. So <laughs> well, I believe Greg's it's, it's the regular. Yeah, the regular edition is one point one d six. The uh, special edition is one d eight. Yeah. Which is a lot. Yeah, that yeah. feels. And this can slice. This is more of a slicing weapon here. The, the there it is. Edition. Piercing. It's got a piercing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's got some piercing damage. Gifts <laughs> uh, that keeps on giving. Yeah, well, I mean, going back to something that, that uh, uh, Kyle had said, uh, you know, you found, like, you were all these questions. Like, do you, do you feel like you, you, you have the answers to those questions now of, of uh, why this brand has endured for so long? I, we're, I think we're, we're closer to it. I, I don't <laughs> think there is a definitive. <laughs> we're working on it. No, you know what it is? It's one of those things where I hope it's around forever. Um, there's going to be technological advances and how will it adapt to and endure? Um, we, a big part of the, this book is computer games and how the most dominant way the game was visualized in the nineties and beyond was, was uh, digitally. And sometimes that took center stage and there was animation. There have been movies, there'll be more movies. And sometimes like a future movie may, might redefine everything mm-hmm. and dominate the complexion of the brand. So there's a, a lot to be determined, but I think uh, at the core of it, it's community friendship, imagination, it's collaborative storytelling. And uh, why there is this resurgence, I I believe, is um, a desire to connect again, uh, a desire for analog. And I think video games promise open borders, but we all know there's a digital border somewhere. This is truly open. You can truly do anything. And I think that's going to be the uh, persistent allure of Dungeons. Also also the allure of... of just introducing a new generation to Satan worship, you know, like getting kids <laughs> to to buy into. Oh, John, what? What? Oh, yeah, I, I thought you were covering your eyes, but no, you're putting the. <laughs> He's got the horns. He's throwing the horns up. You know, there there's not a lot of kids know how do I get into a satanic cult? How do I start? I know like, they don't about- teach that in school anymore. <laughs> they don't not anymore. No, and so they have D and D clubs for that. <laughs> Let's bring the kids in and let's, you know, teach them about true power. Well, in some ways, I mean, you guys certainly don't shy away from from talking about the satanic panic era uh, uh, throughout the history. That was one of my favorite parts in the book. The one that, like, the (laughs) pamphlet from Bad bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. My mom was So let's talk about this for a second. You know, for, for some people in the chat room, you guys might not be aware that in the 80s, it the parents were highly convinced that not only... Could role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, which was, by the way, the only game in town for a long time, role-playing games could damage your perception of reality. You would, if you played D and D too much, you would become confused about who you were versus who your character in the game was, mm. and you would suddenly lose your identity and become convinced that you are your character, and wander off into some steam tunnel somewhere, and bad things would happen. And th- that was one belief. And the other belief was this was recruitment material. For satanic cults uh so that is you know one of the fun things i say i don't know if it's fun <laughs> it's coming from a guy whose mother threw away his D collection because it's the devil yeah but um but but one of the things to to take the humor and and turn it into something that where i you almost don't blame the parents role-playing games were such a new concept and people mm-hmm. so so it was so mystified people and that children were ill-equipped to describe to their parents what even this game was or how you played it. And it was so dear. Is it a board game? How do you win? And all this stuff. And, and uh, yeah. so they were in a weird way, 
rightfully confused. They just, the conclusions they drew were pretty dramatic uh, in terms of parents. But th- I wanted to stop and explain that because th- just to remind us, not all D&D fans know these pieces of D&D history. That in the 80s, there was a big deal about satanic worship. And right. People going insane. And, I and remember. Tom Hanks crying on TV. <laughs> he's gonna jump off because he's his character yeah tom hanks played in in a movie made for tv movie called mazes and monsters which was about the uh dangers of dungeons and dragons and he plays a kid there There it is is. there it is and he plays a kid who uh becomes confused and thinks he's his cleric character in the game and uh nearly jumps off the top of a tower and he uh, says, JJ, what am I doing here? What am I doing? Oh. Yeah, <laughs> Academy Award winning Tom Hanks performance. Which, but by this the way, was so, this was so intellectually uh, and culturally disruptive. And it was so trend setting that I, the mainstream hadn't caught up. And it was a phenomenon. I think that's really important what Sam's talking about is, um, you know, this game, uh, we're laughing about it right now. But at the time, you couldn't conceive of what it really was. It's like you get together with your friends and you talk about murdering people. You talk about robbing people. You're Conjuring real monsters. There's rules for these things. and you. But you're not winning, so it sounds very real. So it it <laughs> must have blown a lot of people's minds, and um, we know it did. And there was a definite reaction. And there's a, obviously a reaction from the brand uh, as it's getting bigger to – want to position itself in a way so it can grow. It's been recently acquired at this point. It has new money behind it, and it wants to, as a publisher, that uh, it's going a little more mainstream. So there's a, a uh, an image that needs to be kept up. There's a lot that has to be considered because it's a business. So there was so much going on in just a few short years, and then you're seeing it pop up in E.T., and you're seeing it with an animated series, and you're seeing it in the Tom Hanks movie, and you're seeing it on 60 Minutes, and there's, what, what do you make of this thing? What is this thing? And that's why it became the phenomenon uh, it did in that era. And it's, it's achieved probably its greatest heights since right now. We're living in, like, this new renaissance. So um, but for totally different reasons. Yeah, and it's Completely very opposite. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and it's you know some of the ways the that D and D fans are 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 not uh, you know as, as Sam you were saying that like you know they might not know Gygax or the history of all this too. So do uh, parents you know who who you know see something and they're like oh here's a game that here are my kids able to uh, uh, interact with each other lose their imagination that's something that's good we don't want them you know doing uh, more destructive things out there and then it's turned into I've, I've told this before on the podcast but when I was at uh, Hascon. Uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, with uh, people who were there for, um, you know, My Little Pony and other things, there were there were there were parents who were coming up to me being like, "Oh, I can't wait to get my kids to play Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It's so good for them. It does amazing things in in making their minds, uh, 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 you know, expand their imaginations." And I I was just dumbfounded. They'd be like, "Oh, oh, okay, you're <laughs> you're a good parent." Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, even me and my brother's parents are very. Keenly aware, since we're releasing a book now, they're like, oh, that, that, that was good for you. We're okay. <laughs> <laughs> we were wrong. But, you know, they, my parent, they my mom like, still hasn't said that. <laughs> you know, you're still, so you're right. You're yeah. in the middle. I'm like, you know, what, I guess where I work now. Book. Yeah, I know. Maybe I'll send her this but book. Our uh, parents are, are like fully like, yeah, we didn't know. We didn't understand what it yeah. was. And, and the proof's in the pudding at this point. Again, now we have data that, well, let, let's call it at least anecdotal data that suggests that look at the people that were playing the game right. in the 70s and 80s 
the George R. R. Martins and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, and the, the Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I mean, like the list goes on and on and on of kind of these people. John Carmack and John Romero were playing a D&D game and came up with Doom. The first John Favreau. First Say again? John Favreau. John Favreau. John Favreau. Is one of the early in- uh, instances of learning how to tell stories. And stuff. Yeah. Barack Obama. <laughs> no, I, I had no. Clinton. No, but I mean, so, I mean, again, you see a lot of people and, and the Duffer brothers being a very poignant example today. Of course, mm-hmm. they bring D&D directly into their, their creative storytelling. But um, from technologists to entertainers, writers and beyond, uh, this game has clearly inspired the imagination of an entire generation of people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've said this before, kind of this notion that the masters of the information age uh, kind of came out of this D&D culture. And so we can see that. Whether we can, you know, attribute all those things to the game or not, who knows? But there's clearly a nice correlation that suggests that this was pretty healthy for developing imagination, developing literacy, all these things that the game right. has kind of had these great ancillary benefits, and we see that more and more. Yeah, all these, all these very powerful individuals who uh, definitely proved that D and D is the path to early and, la- and and you know power in the material world. They're now rich and uh, running their own <laughs> And that can happen to any child that Anyone. starts to play Dungeons and Dragons. You're actually doing your child a disservice if you're not getting them into D&D. It's true. That's yes. Right. So uh, the schools are actively bringing D&D into classrooms mm-hmm. and to after-school clubs. They, my son just started kindergarten, and there is his after-school care. Is, they're asking, please bring us the D&D books. Please teach us how to play D&D. We want the kids to be doing this stuff. Unlike when Greg went to after school care. That's true. We did. They, oh. yeah. the, the nuns did not ask about that. <laughs> you know, there used to be like a hurdle you had to get over to understand D and D, like in the nineteen seventies, where hit points and armor class and experience and levels and things like that. Those those were relatively novel and esoteric ideas. But today, you can't grow up without being exposed to video games. Maybe it's Kingdom Hearts that gets you first. Whatever it's going to be, right? They're just going to get these ideas into your head. And I think what what people are now discovering and kids are now discovering this fueling so much, I think, of the Renaissance now is you can take that technology back to the tabletop mm-hmm. and there with your friends, you can do exactly the kind of game you want to have, right? You 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 know, the, the great AAA temple games are fantastic. I play them all. I love Witcher and Fallout and all those lines, right? But there's just something so different about going back and having a game that only you and your friends need to enjoy. They just like tailored to what you want to have. And it it used to be kind of a a barrier to entry to that. But now I think everybody has that. It's very accessible. And did you think that that happened, uh, like that was the core tenet that you saw from, from the early days that is still true today? I mean, I think, again, the fact that it was so hard in the early days was a, was a barrier. We're, we're, we kind of lucked out with the satanic panic thing in that it, <laughs> it created this vogue, right, where suddenly, oh, my God, you know, this is like this kind of cool, eerie pastime. What if there's really something to all this occult stuff? And yeah. sales were pretty much quadrupled on the strength of that alone, right? And it, it reached, an, you know, it kind of reached the limits, I guess, of its original audience at the time that the satanic panic was ramping up. It was always kind of about to be mainstream, but not quite. But Mm -hmm. the next thing you know, you're on the front page of the New York Times day after day after day. It's a very salubrious effect on the bottom line. And so, I mean, you know, that helped ease culture into it. But then it was the John Carmacks and the John Romero's, or I guess I might say the Roberto Williams's, the Dave Leblings, people that kind of first got us over the hump, the Andrew Greenberg's, right? That wizardry, you know, games like this, that, you know, got people familiar with these fundamental principles of simulating a fantastic adventure. And yeah, once those things became as ubiquitous as they are today, 
Um, and once with the internet, these things just spread in a way they, they couldn't before. Now everything is a screen that kids touch, and that's why adults are thr- so thrilled to get them away from the screen for anything, just right. you know, just for you know, five hours on a Saturday. Um, you know, that I think, yeah, created this this then opportunity for people to kind of go back to the basics of tabletop and analog, and it's just you and your friends talking about a game that you love. Yeah. Was there anything that you found in your research that uh, that surprised you? That you're like, whoa, I had no idea, you know, <laughs> this artist did this piece. I thought that was this per artist or something like, you know, that blew your mind. Gosh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of ground to cover there. I mean, I think it all surprised us in its own way. You know, you think you know something or you know a lot about something. Uh, as John suggested earlier, you know, we've been studying this stuff a long time, at least he and I in particular. Obviously, Kyle and Sam have been playing for a long, long time, but when you start looking at the brand through the lens of, of art and illustration uh, and just visuals in general, again, not, you know, advertising, for example, gosh, the things you learn about what the brand was trying to do, about mm-hmm. how it was trying to position itself, how it was following this, but it was leading that. Um, I think one of the most, um, <clears throat> one of the neatest parts of the project for me is actually um, the idea of talking to some of these original artists. John had, I think it was John had mentioned this idea that there was a couple, it was these, these local like teenagers that were doing some of the earliest art for Dungeons and Dragons, right? And we could talk all day about why, how necessary it was to provide some illustrations to such an abstract game, right? This is such an unusual game at the time. Um, but actually finding these people and hearing their stories and hearing the, the kind of working environment was to, you know, to hear from Gary one day and expecting drawings of monsters you've never even visualized or heard of the next. Mm. Um, it's an amazing story and it provided such a neat context for how this truly came about. And, and it, it really gave a new definition about how homebrew this, this game truly was when it came about. That was one of the coolest things to find people like Keenan Powell, Greg Bell, Tracy Lesh, people that Tracy Lesh is one that I think is really worth uh, a note regarding that conversation. This, this person that was tasked with doing the original drawings for the tomb of horrors module, right? Oh, wow. He was tasked with doing 24 of the original drawings that were, that were meant to provide visual uniformity to these people playing in the original 1975 tournament. Those um, drawings inspired the latter drawings that we know so well from Trampier and Sutherland. So things like that, were, it, they were just jewels to not only find the pieces, but the people and yeah. to hear their stories. How did you find the people? Were they relatively easy to discover or lots of digging? And were they willing to phone talk books. to you? We went okay. through old phone books. There was a door to door. And I it, think um, everyone had different connections and different leads on, on art. And, um, you know, John and Michael know a lot of people deeper in it in the, in the collector community. And sometimes I'd get wind that like uh, one example is Dave Mandel, who's a exec producer showrunner on, on Beep that he had um, the monster manual painting. And one thing we wanted to do was show oh. art in, as the artist painted it and not just how we've seen it, you know, appropriated and sold as a product with logos and everything. We wanted to see like, what was the original painting and let's show it to people in a big spread. And then looking at those things, we discovered, like, I never knew that was there. I forgot it was there. I never knew it looked like that. Or I never knew this wasn't finished. And um, you pick up details and brushstrokes. And, and so Dave, I reached out to Dave and he's like, yeah, I have that. And yeah, you can photograph it. I've got some more. And he would expose us to some other pictures we didn't have or know existed. And we would hear rumors of stuff that were um, deleted or uh, blocked art, that stuff that Gary didn't like that ended up in the book. So oh, cool. um, well, some of these things that we've found came in 
just under the gun. Like some of the biggest fines, and, and I don't know if we should tell them which ones. Is it <laughs> worth saying a couple of them? Yeah. Do it. Yeah. yeah. John, I'm going to leave this to you, man. Right. <laughs> I don't want to. The decision or the explanation? So, I mean, we, we yeah, we did, um, we did manage to connect up with one of the more important art collectors relatively late in the process. And so kind of at really when we were, we, I want to say past deadline, we certainly had delivered on a book that would have been pretty complete. And then we had to say, you know, we need to put a few more things in. <laughs> it's something that I think uh, Kyle may have been alluding to about, you know, images that we'd heard rumor. Like we'd heard rumor that there was this original concept draw, uh, drawing of the Beholder that Greg Bell had done, but the Beholder wasn't floating yet. Where it was like on stuck on the ground. And it had like the big central line, the tentacles, and you know, like, but the thing is that Gary had nixed it, of course, because that wasn't, wasn't accurate. And then Bell redid this as the famous Sphere of Doom, of, uh, Doom drawing that's on the cover of the Greyhawk booklet. Um, and yeah, as part of this kind of last minute um, set of images, we managed to get that original, as Mike is showing right there now. It is. Yeah, ground beholder. And you can so see it's- Gary's actually drawn in no and don't use <laughs> <laughs> But it's, you know, when you look at that that illustration, it's kind of a beholder. It's kind of a roper. It's kind of a neo orta, uh, all in one. And uh, again, so many so many weird little pieces like that. Uh, some of our most important pieces literally came in, you know, a week or two from having to be content locked on the book. And in fact, you know, again. John, you know the one I'm thinking of. Is that worth telling the story or no? We can't tell that story, can we? We shouldn't tell that story. <laughs> okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> okay, but, but so, su- so now there's, there's say, bodies to be found, I see. Okay, good. Right. Well, I mean, we, we, we'll have you, to wait revealed in the fullness of time. It, yeah, and it, it certainly will. And, and again, it, uh, this, this project really had a lot to do with you just keep looking under these rocks, right? You keep showing up. And the darndest things started to happen. Again, we couldn't control the timing on those. So one reason we had confidence going to the project is – we knew a lot about the subject. We had obviously studied it a lot. John was a collector. We were pretty hooked into a lot of the number of the collectors. So if you think about the scope of this book from, from a distance, you know, you can sit here as a team and we can say, well, we know we can get like the best examples of the product out there. We know some of the best collectors that have that stuff, the best brown box, for example, the great examples of the original chain mail and, and all the way through uh, present day. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew where a few of the original pieces were, but I mean, just a few, you know, so think about... Um, for example, we knew. Oh, John! Oh, look stop at it. that! Look at that! Oh, in the yeah. shrink wrap. Oh, wow! It, they assembled in Gary's basement. Yeah, John. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, got hand his, assembled. I mean, his fingerprints are on it. There's only a thousand of those, incidentally, and in terms of how many are actually existing, probably what half that. Right. Are and there is a there is a movie to be made, Kyle, where basically we go through John's brown boxes to try to to assemble the complete Gary Gygax genome and clone the man. Yeah. Just oh, as as I never thought of that. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could do it Serpenter style and get like, you know, Gary oh. Gygax and Arneson and Arneson. But it was a process you couldn't quite control, but we knew we could at least enter the project with things knowing that, for example, Wizards had discovered the, the basic uh, box cover by Dave Sutherland. That was one that we knew Kurt Gould had actually found it in a dusty storeroom at Wizards, and we, we were happened to be connected to some of those channels. Um, a, a good colleague of, of John and I, Paul Stormberg, we knew he owned... Um, a, a number of important artifacts and some original cover painting. You know, we had a lot of friends that that own things, but it was like a, it was a handful of pieces. It wasn't like we knew where all five of the original AD and D wrapper on covers uh, were. Yeah, we did not. We did. And not. the fact that we found those, I think that was one of the the biggest single 
uh, wins with yeah, this project. I think we can say, what do we like? Like two or three weeks from from lock. What do we have? Three or we had four four out of five, and then we went to five out of five afterward. Is that how that worked? Or three out of five, and then we the last few came in. Yeah, I mean, I so I had to go to London to shoot uh, the Fiend Folio myself, which uh, Ian Livingstone, the founder of Games Workshop, of course, Games Workshop worked with TSR on the Fiend Folio, so right. he has that on on his wall. In his, it's kind wow. of his laundry, you might say. It's not even in his office actually. It's kind of more. I, I don't know if there's literally a laundry machine there, but it seemed kind of like a yeah little wall entry. <laughs> He's like, we got it in the mud room. We'll just keep it there. <laughs> Nice. Well, Kyle, I mean, they, they, uh, uh, Michael described you as the, the visual uh, person uh, behind this. The, you know, the, so the, I would call you the illusionist of this party, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but like, how, what was it like putting together like, the, the layout of all of these disparate sources and making it feel like a cohesive whole? Because there's something that's really great about uh, the way this book is put together. It doesn't feel like it's a hodgepodge. It feels like a, 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 it tells a continuous a story. story. Yeah. Thank you. That was something we all did. I, I think it was, we'd all, we, I, I wanted to lay out the sample pages on the floor chapter by chapter and look at it in a macro way and get a feel and say, is this, what are the colors like? What is, do these images that we wrote into our manuscript saying, we're going to put a quarter page of this and a full page over here of this uh, Bally's ad with a, with a pinball machine. Do these go together now that we see them together when they're laid out? What is the relationship between the images and can we tell a different story by moving this one four pages back and moving this up or putting this evolution spread about the beholder next to this. And so it became a different re- a rewrite process for all of us. Mm. And um, trying to find those, those juxtapositions, those relationships that could make each page you open up um, feel like a complete story where your eye would move circular around the page and you could get what was going on in that moment, that, that uh, era or that campaign setting. And um yeah, I was probably a little more difficult when it came to that stuff because like, if something doesn't feel right, it's got get, got to keep fixing it. It's got to be right. And then that was we looked at it like the phases of, of filmmaking, and there was the pre-production, there was information gathering, and there was the writing, uh, and then there was a, there was a rewriting. And it's like, what do we actually have? What did we quote unquote shoot? And then how are we going to edit it? And how are we going to really polish it? And we had a great team up at Ten Speed Press. We had um, wonderful, you know, uh, editor and graphic designer up there that we. Uh, I probably rode them more to the ground with the, with the layout and stuff, but um, it was something but, I could, you know, all we're so glad you did though, by you know, Kyle, like you, that was, that was your strength. And, and uh, it's, but, it's a collaboration. Thank you. It was a collaboration. Cause I wanted, I didn't want to be able well, this feels like this. I want to make sure that we're all feeling that. And when we came to like talking about what's the cover going to be, uh, there's a lot of options laid out. We all like, you know, quickly narrowed in on two or three. We're like, it, this is giving the right elements, the things that need to be said the things that are, imperative to this conversation and so we wanted it to feel like it wasn't one person saying oh you just go do that we all tried to roll up our sleeves and wrap our heads around why if somebody's feeling this way oh yeah i see that now maybe we should go this way and it became this a group a party effort and that was one of those things where at that phase i i was maybe leading it a little more i felt like more passionate because there was a lot more we were like proofing and moving things and losing things and editing things and turning things into, uh, you know, stuff to go below the image and everything was getting mixed around. So it was a lot for everyone to kind of focus on. And, um, but I I think that was just, the book was rewritten visually, um, after it was written textually. Interesting. Yeah. That was one of the, the questions that I wanted to ask was, did the story evolve because of the images that you had 
secured or did you write the story and then seek out the images or was it kind of in tandem? It was both sections were driven by sometimes by text. Like this is the important text. This is a story that needs to be told. And um, we just had to get aligned on what that uh, cohesive linear narrative was. And that became a spine. And then on that spine, we could adhere and branch off into subsections and subplots. Like I said, advertising is a big thing. There's 90 pages of it, and it's, it's liberally dispersed throughout. Um, but there's like a Dragonlance section that's almost 14 pages. There's an animated series section. There's stuff on the movies. And all these things um, come and pop up at different points. And, and that became a place of what do we have? What could we really license? And how hard is it to get this image from Mazes and Monsters? And how hard is it to get this obscure you know, piece of advertising. And so all those things were, ultimately I'd say we got almost everything we wanted, right? Oh yeah. 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 And when we did, we got, we got very, very, but the timing of their acquisition definitely informed how things were laid out, what we felt like we had as foundation and then where we could grow from. Um, Obviously the early chapters are go a little deeper dive into the history because so much of the, the later history in fifth edition is still being, written um not that it's conjecture but uh it's 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 hard to write about something when you're in it but you have things like critical role and force gray and they're changing the way the game is visualized and experienced you have dwarven forge and suddenly people are playing it that way you have roll 20 and fantasy grounds and all these things are talked about but we still don't know how how what are the implications of that on um the method uh, the delivery of the game but you can play the game as it's meant to be played now internationally with a friend in Australia and you can all be playing live. You're not having to play a digital, like a, a, like a PC version of the game. You're playing Dungeons and Dragons, but you're using technology and you're harnessing it. Um, so there's all those things that uh, I think change the, the visual history of the brand, but this one we're living in it. So, Well, then you well, can um, save it for volume two. <laughs> and there's, yeah, there'd be plenty, there'd be plenty. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because there's so many things that they had to be left on the, as big as that book is, you wouldn't believe the amount of material oh, we had. That was one of my questions too. What? Oh, I mean, the cutting room floor—we couldn't even see the floor by the time it was done. <laughs> you know, as it were. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the thing is, and this does piggyback uh, kind of both questions. Really, this this notion that uh, it's the difference between a visual history and an art book, right? The idea that we had to find a way to curate—let's call it for conservatively twenty thousand images. Maybe there's 100,000 images in, in all of d and I, I don't know the answer to that. It's a lot of imagery, right, since 1974. So how do you choose what's best? And one of the first things we did all as authors is we pulled out, say, 200 of the images that we thought for some reason should be included. But it was pretty arbitrary. Mm-hmm. What speaks to you? What do you like? What do you think is really important? And what we figured out pretty quickly was that that was arbitrary curation. We needed a better way to do it. And that's really where we started honing in on this notion of visual history. The idea that we want to tell the story of the brand is told through its visuals, but it's not just art. This becomes really important. But then the art itself, you think to yourself, well, is this piece, you know, you, it's safe to say anything built from, let's say, second edition and on is better objectively than anything built before 1980. In terms of quality, he's saying, you know, in terms of you, you, can't, right. you can't take, say, a piece of first edition art and compare it objectively to, say, a fifth edition piece of art and say, oh, this is better art. And then suddenly we started realizing, like, like take that box that John just put in the camera. John, John could you take the brown box out and, and push it in the camera? If you were just a layman walking down the street and saw that, that's a pretty unimpressive thing to look at. So when we put that in the book, well, guess what? It's still unimpressive until you know what 
that you were holding. So you know the significance of the fact that it was assembled by Gygax and his family. There was some guy who was making a game out of his basement that was go that was going to go on and change the world of gaming and in fact the world of change pop culture forever. So it was those types of things where we were like, it's not always necessarily the best piece of art. It's what are the most historically significant moments and what artwork can support those moments to make it, you know, more of a visual history. And, and that, that's exactly what, what kind of the secret sauce was, is that, again, if a piece of art happened to be on a book that sold a million copies, suffice it to say it's become an important piece of art, whether it's that good a piece or not. Right. And that is really where you land on, on so many of these pieces. That's one of the ways you can curate that story and make sure that you're resonating with people who experience this game. This is how they experienced it visually. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a pretty, it pretty, really a fun effort, and I don't think any one of us really realized exactly what we were getting into. But boy, we're we're glad we went we went through it. Well, we're glad you did too. Yeah. So a lot of times when we talk to people about when they first discovered Dungeons and Dragons, they refer to a piece of art. They'll say like, "I was in a store with my mom, and I turned around, and there was this book in front of me, and I saw it." Or they saw somebody, their cousin had a book on their shelf or something. Is there a piece of art for each of you that just really encapsulates what Dungeons and Dragons is? What is the most iconic piece for you? I mean, that's for that's me. A hard it's, one. Oh. it's Trampier's first edition player's handbook. Easy okay. for me. Easy. Well, yeah, Sam, that was that was your top objective. There's no question. That was number one, kind of in all of our lists. But certainly, certainly, Sam was very, very passionate about that yeah, one. Yeah, it's it's got this cool demon idol. Yeah. Uh, thus scaring the parents into. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we wonder why the parents were so this afraid. <laughs> demon idol, and there's this group of uh, characters gathered around. And there's a couple of thieves who are trying to pluck a gem out of the eye of the demon idol, and there's a dead, a couple of dead lizard men, and there's all kinds of weird stuff. But it's basically like a snapshot of a game in progress and it kind of shows what kind of world that is. And uh, for me, it was my, that was my gateway into D and D was staring at that cover. And uh, mm. yeah, it's kind of incredible. That is cool. Um, What's your favorite, John? Yeah. Um, um, let's see. Yeah. I got to hear what John's is. I can't even imagine. Well, it would be one of these Aero Lotus pieces, right? It's something to say, maybe Aero Lotus from the Moldvay cover. In the sense of, um, you know, there's just something about Otis's style, I think, and especially the the way that um, his characters is. I think we say this in the book, even. You know, they're more kind of you know freaks and misfits um, than kind of brawny, you know, traditional fantasy heroes. Mm. And um, yeah, that's the the multicolored yeah. yeah, the Errol Otis characters. I love it when Errol Otis paints player characters because they're all just whacked out. <laughs> and that's what big I, early I'm an Otis fan too. And I, at one point, I, I think I referred to him as the uh, El Greco of of the D and D art because his, his forms bend, and he's just finally putting a little something personal and different onto what was more traditional. And Otis's stuff, D and D is a little weird and quirky. It's not just traditional fantasy. It's you're open to the bizarre. You could walk into a room and you don't know what's what is a gibbering mouther like his. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's just. <laughs> It's hard to explain some of these things. Like it's not traditional fantasy, and that's what makes the IP so unique. So uh, it's—I don't know if I could say Otis is maybe my favorite artist, but it depends on the day. It could be an easily, but I think the, the the image we have on the cover is pretty iconic, um, yeah, pretty darn um, important yeah. because oh, yeah. it's very cinematic. It puts you into combat and conflict. You're 
you feel like you're a part of it. It's inviting. And there was debate. Should it be the player's handbook cover that, that Sam was referring to? Should it be this? There's a couple other ones up for debate as to what really signifies the brand and what it's about. I think ultimately because there was a dragon involved, uh, right. it, it, it usurped the other one. But um, mm-hmm. there are all yeah, so many important pieces for each era. It's like that's what it was. Those are the ones that signified that year, that decade. So right. it's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> What was great about the, uh, you know, what we chose for our cover was that the fact that it was um, kind of a middle ground in terms of the history, you know, when the art really started becoming vivid and and honestly competitive with today's art. Um, because, yeah, and, but yet it's still a historical piece. It's still one that um, that generates nostalgia and good feeling from old time players as well, because we were trying to figure out how do you... How do you encapsulate the brand while inviting the old school grognards and uh, the new school Twitch players? And uh, that seemed to be the good middle ground right there. Right. And, uh, and for me, it's that one right there. Oh, oh yes. Oh, Unearthed yeah. Arcana yes. by Jeff Easley. Um, yeah, they easily suffer from the 80s. Now, again, those who know uh, my last book, Empire of Imagination, might realize that. We did a referential piece to Unearthed Arcana on the cover using Jeff Easley. I, I asked Jeff Easley to go do that cover. And instead of the wizard, it's, you know, it's a picture of Gary, you know, with a loosened tie. And he's in front of a typewriter instead of the magic book. Uh, instead of beakers and things like that, it's, it's bookshelves. And, you know, um, but I think that piece for me, you know, actually fun fact on this one. So that piece for me, um, when I was a kid, as Sam already suggested, this was, this was kind of in the height of the, the satanic panic. And uh, as much as I love that piece and I poured over that piece, I was afraid to look in the eyes of the wizard. Oh. Is that, that right? For that piece and the Easley, uh, <laughs> Dungeon Master Guide from 1983 where the, with the, the Dungeon Master with the open doors, I was afraid to look in the eyes of those two pieces for fear that they were imbued with some type of um, well, you know, demonic if you power. Took, you know, if you took those they books were. and threw them yeah. into the fire, they would scream. You know that, right? <laughs> Those were the types of rumors that were. By the way, that's around. a real rumor. Wait, I, I didn't that's make that rumor. up. That's a, yeah, real, that's a real rumor. Thing. If you took a D and D book and you threw it into the fire, the books would scream. That's just how parents uh, got you guys to destroy your D and D books. <laughs> this is how parents thought book was a good idea. <laughs> we, we got them back. If you we hold it up back. in a mirror, it, the book won't be there anymore. <laughs> if you Look, say some of these Dungeon ideas, Master's Guide three we're times about you know this. <laughs> The history and the art. I, I didn't know as much about this. There's, there's always this phrase in writing. It's like, write what you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's crap. I think you should write what you want to know. Um, because I wanted to dive deeper into this. I wanted to say, why did this affect me so much when I was a kid? Why did this stick with me? Why am I playing this again when I'm 40 years old? Uh, my older brothers played it and they wouldn't let me play it because I was just a little bit too little. So then I would go and draw what was in the monster manual. Um, why did I have that relationship to it? That's what I wanted to explore, you know? And mm. I learned from all of these guys just being in the same room from every day. And then just flipping through the book when it's done, I still feel like a you very learn. proud experience. And I, I'm learning from it. Like there's stuff where I didn't necessarily focus on that era. And I'm like looking at that little thing and I'm like, that's really cool. I mean, and so if this seems daunting, it doesn't need to be. I mean, this book is a visual experience. You can just put it on your table, flip through it leisurely. And you're going to get something out of it. Or you can sit down and read like a linear history if you want, and you're going to get another experience. And that's what that's what we tried to cure. You can throw it in the fire and it will scream. (laughs) 
It does scream. That's why you should get two copies. That's right. Pick it up. It's only the special edition screams to be to be. <laughs> that's true. Right. <laughs> right. Only special. The more expensive one is the one that screams. So well, that's your your wallet screams if it's the special. Edition. That's it's hydro <laughs> hydro seventy four will scream in Miami if you uh, if you do that. Um, sure. But yeah, no. I mean, we've been focusing a lot on the uh, on the seventies and eighties, but I mean, I think I want to make sure everybody knows it. it you guys talk about uh, the transition from second to third edition, from third to fourth, and even now in, in fifth edition, you mentioned the, the Twitch streamers and what's been happening now. And I was looking here at the end because I heard a rumor that the image from the stream of Annihilation didn't make it in. Is that true? Did that get cut? Or is it in there? It, no, that's in there. It, it's, it's, it is in there. Okay, good. It's in the beginning. I was oh, okay. playing a game last night at uh, Joe Manganiello's house, and Liam O'Brien was there, and he, it was the first time we got to show him the book, and he's like, oh, I'm There it back. is. Okay, like, good. Oh, no, I found it. You found it. in front of the book, too, oh. and um, <laughs> got that image in there. That was your help. Thank you, Greg. Right no problem. Things. Yeah, there it is. Boom. Perfect. That one's got – that one felt very important to me because it has a lot of the active people right now front and center with the band, brand. It was – Bob Merles and Perkins and Deborah Ann Wall and Joe and Liam and Matt Mercer and Marisha. It was like everybody was in this image playing, coming together to do an event. And that was just another way, like the streams you guys put on, uh, that Waterdeep experience. You, you can't really put that in a book. How do you, you might show a picture from it, but that was an experience, you know? Yeah. So there's all new ways that this, this, the, the brand is kind of uh, connecting. Right, Which right. Is, and it was great seeing the four of you uh, uh, in costume oh, uh, on the streets so of Waterdeep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for making they us dress costume. up. <laughs> they were in costume. Jeff will actually dress. <laughs> they were in costume. That's true. John, you were like, you were like the only one who was like, hey, this is just, this is just Tuesday just for me. Just another day in Waterdeep. <laughs> I looked like Assassin's Creed. Someone gave me this thing at the last minute, thankfully, and I had this yeah, sleeveless like this sleeveless cape thing i was like yeah there was a guy there was a guy who was there who who because you guys you know we got there in jeans t-shirt and you're like well if you're gonna be on the streets of water if you got to dress like it and there was a guy who i worked with on smallville who's like i'm like can you help us he's like yeah oh you had worked with us in 10 minutes you worked with dustin like 10 minutes and what's hilarious is kyle had this great intro where he's this this, he's this, standing in the back of this robot. I saw that. And then he takes his robot. Then, Kyle, this is the way I remember it. You take your robot off and you pull it off like this and you go, so I'm Kyle? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, like, you had the robe pull perfect, but after that, you hadn't thought, like, what's the next step? <laughs> anyway, this is a Which book is very true. Called. I did, I did not have an elaborate character plan. <laughs> Kyle, the Kyle illusionist. From this plane uh, appearing in the realms. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Did you, so Sam, you'd worked with Dustin Fletcher before? Is it, was that the, the, the person that you were talking about? I'm, I'm so terrible with names. All, all, all I know I is think it was him. I think it was him. He was outfitting most of the streets of Waterdeep. He did a and fantastic I, job. But and he just had like a whole stash of. Yeah, he, and honestly, yeah. he's one of those players who, uh, uh, you know, had the history and, he, he, you know, he'd been following D&D &D for a long time, but he was caught up in the moment of, like, I want to be involved with what's happening right now uh, with Dungeons yeah. & Dragons and experience the history and all that stuff. So he's he's almost like what the the, the uh, target audience for, for this type of a, of a book. And uh, he saved us because we really wanted to be able to tell everyone about what the book was, but we had to be in... Uh cosplay period so. cosplay that's right <laughs> anyway yeah. you would have been you would have been fine with a t-shirt it would have been totally fine but you no, know. no it would Even not better. have we were on the streets of Waterdeep now right, <laughs> you would have stood out yeah. yeah you got that open to an ad that i worked on oh really uh-huh 
Shelly Mazzanobel did this. I'm glad that this. you could commemorate QR codes forever. What did <laughs> you do they, last night? Oh, cool. They, they, they may still work. Our, yeah. our printing was so good in the book, it, the QR, QR codes. It probably does. Whatever. Still do it. Yep. Uh, so you guys got a chance to meet uh, uh, Ed Greenwood at the, uh, uh, I mean, you're sure you've met him before, but at the stream of many eyes. What, what, was, uh, what was he like to interact with on the streets of Waterdeep? Well, I mean, I think he, he was pickled. <laughs> He was tickled pink to be able to be brought into the Art and Arcana shop where we had that uh, facsimile of the Waterdeep map. And we took some pictures with him actually in full Elminster garb, pointing to it. And, you know, I, I think he really got a kick out of it. I think he had a great time. Yeah. yeah. Everyone yeah. did. It's got to be surreal. Except for you, Shelley. Except for me, because I wasn't there. <laughs> oh. Still feeling the burn. Still feeling the burn from that. Because everybody keeps talking about how <laughs> fun it was. <laughs> It was cool. It was really cool. It was very cool. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, good Great. luck, Greg, next year in, in topping that. I know. Sure He's already working on it. So, yeah. It's going to be hard. But musical, I think that's what we're going to do, Kyle. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was cool. I got to bring my children to it. Uh, they're three and four at the time and had a huge impression on them. I think seeing it there viscerally in front of them, um, my four-year-old's become... Uh, Obsessed with beholders. Oh, nice. cute. So, uh, I think it's important that the, you know the people get acclimated to what the brand is earlier, right? And um, you know, so by the time they're ready to move on to the books, it's not an alien thing. It's just something they graduate to. Their squeals of joy when they were like, "Daddy, look! It's a treasure chest!" <laughs> they were so excited to find the treasure, and they were like, "Oh, it's just a prop. There's nothing in there, kids. Sorry." No, it's a mimic. I'm gonna say <laughs> it's, it's better mimic. than it being a mimic. Like, no. <laughs> Don't go near Michael, the. Michael, straighten me out. Um, um, which Gygax uh, son came by the store? Luke. Uh, Luke, Luke. Luke was there. So Luke Gygax comes by with his his uh, two daughters. Correct. Mm-hmm. Two daughters. It, um, uh, was there a son or no? Was it just two daughters? Does he have three? Yeah, he's got three. I think you're right, John. Yeah. So, so the oldest daughter who had to be what, Michael? Is she 12, 13? I think that's about right. I, I'd have to ask Luke on that one. But yeah, I mean, she's, yeah, she's around that age, I think. Young, young girl. And she comes in um, just kind of looking, you know, just kind of just nodding and, and not looking particularly impressed or unimpressed, just kind of checking it out, just kind of like looking at it. And she just goes to me, she goes, or oh, there's that a Githy Yankee. I'm like, yes, it is. And she's like, Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, this is the, the guy Gax jeans are strong. Like, yeah, right. This is not even hard for her. She's like, is that a gift Yankee? I'm like, yeah, cool. I think so. Cool. Like, <laughs> that's that's where we are with Dungeons and Dragons right now. Twelve year olds can just be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cool. I, I prefer uh, easily. Thanks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they think it's cool. Yeah, right. Well, guys, uh, Wait, we I'm, didn't talk about owl bears. We didn't talk about owl bears or orcs. And, and the evolution of the owl bear. Uh, we, we could probably do that in thirty seconds. Okay, John, do we it. got John here and everything. Please do it, John. Go. John's holding it. Actually, there oh, it is. That. My God, it's a dinosaur bear. Yeah. So these are the original toys. I'll show a couple. You may recognize a rust monster too. Oh uh, yeah. And so, uh, so, so oh, tiny. No. Yeah. Before we uh, let's pretend like the audience doesn't know what these are that you're showing. What are those, and what did they evolve into? So these were little dime store monsters that were sold again in the 1960s, 1970s in assortments. You'd find them in little bags of like prehistoric animals, and so they were very cheap. 
but they were repurposed by the folks around Lake Geneva and the Twin Cities to serve as monsters for you know, originally, you know, the kind of pre-D&D games within D&D itself in the first couple of years. And so Dave Sutherland actually used this model pretty much at like that profile to serve, it's that profile actually. Absolutely. Yeah, that profile, right. sorry. <laughs> to serve as the illustration of that fellow there. Oh, there he is. Oh There's God. the other. Um, you can kind of do that comparison. Yeah, actually, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and put your guy up and I'll put my guy yeah. up. Oh. Yep, there you go. Look at that. That is super cool. There's and your... So, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out the sources and inspirations for the early artwork because, you know, when you first say, like, you know, Bear, what's an Bear supposed to look like? Nobody has any idea, right? And, you know, Greg Bell kind of took a stab at it, but this became the iconic representation of it. And wherever we could, we tried to point back to those sources, sometimes with licenses to people like Marvel Comics, because in some cases, these young artists who were being, you know, operating a shoestring budget just need to get something done immediately, and they had no idea what it was supposed to look like, and oh my god, oh my god, I got it. Oh, and here's a copy of Strange Tales number 167, and maybe I'll just draw something that looks like what's in this one. And, and this is how we ended up with a lot of our Lady in the Art. Well, and who's going to ever see it, right? I mean, it's so homebrew. Who's going to ever see this? They print a thousand copies mm-hmm. for distribution in really obscure hobby channels. And at the end of the day, you know, you realize that uh, while, the, you know, this, the source of some of these things is really pretty arbitrary, as John has suggested, right? They had these plastic toys. Let's do a drawing that looks like that. But how cool to think the context is truly that they're tasked with drawing something they've never seen before. They've, no one's ever conceptualized it on paper. And so they just have to go with what they know. No one, I mean, they might have an encyclopedia if they're lucky or some, some kind of um, you know, manual they can kind of copy out of. But there's certainly no internet. So it's, it's such a kind of a shoestrings way to come up with all this stuff. And I think it's so cool to kind of discover that history and realize that these, these iconic representations, in some cases, were drawn by 14-year-olds and 17-year-old kids that were hanging around Lake Geneva that were, that were just kind of local dreamers that, that would kind of go by the Gygax house once in a while. I mean, it was, it was a pretty neat thing. Yeah, it's a, it, like it, it uh, equates it to like just doodling on your notebook in, in, in high school. Like some of those, you know, were pretty fancy, fancy and crazy and weird. And, and they ended up being D&D monsters, some of them in that era. And that's pretty cool. Well, that's how they found Tracy Lesh. Tracy Lesh was a 14-year-old local boy who was in Elisa's class. Mm-hmm. And she saw him doodling in his notebook and said, and said, you should talk to my dad. So Tracy Lesh gets pulled on to do Boot Hill, another early TSR uh, Western role-playing game. Uh, and then Tracy Lesh is the not only gets con, uh, you know conscripted to do the Tomb of Horrors assignment, but also is the first one to do the Mind Flayer and the Roper, which are, he does the original illustrations of those. So I mean, wow. what a cool thing! Fourteen-year-old yeah. kid, local. You guys did a really good job of uh, getting this book into the hands of a lot of people on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, so, uh, or maybe it was your your counterparts at uh, Ten Speed Press who did that, but. Uh, all weekend long, I've been seeing people discovering little bits of stuff that they didn't. People who, you know, uh, are, are self-professed, you know, influencers in, in, in Dungeons and Dragons, not knowing some of this stuff, and uh, having uh, the drawing of the Mind Flayer was the one that that came to mind. Of like, oh, this is one of the first iterations of this iconic monster, and uh, nobody would know where that had come from if it, if it wasn't I, for you guys doing that research and putting it in this book. I actually was flipping through it today. And I saw the mind flare section, and it hasn't it hasn't even changed that much. <laughs> right? Like I was like, we kind of nailed it early on. Like it's kind of like, yep, you can. Well, and well, you know, one thing that becomes very cool is, uh, as I mentioned, John is a collector, and he has a number of these things in his own collection, or we know people that have them. Uh, Gary's original descriptions in many of these cases hold true from when he first wrote them, which is always, of course, precedes when they actually get drawn. But there's sometimes right. years between these these periods. 
So we've got the original description of a beholder and a mind flayer. We have uh, one thing that we have in the book that is a pretty incredible piece is Gary's demon chart from Eldritch Wizardry. So the, the, he basically was very prescriptive about how he told Dave Sutherland to do these, these different demons, including Demogorgon and some others. Mm. Um, and, and again, you can see how true they were to these descriptions. And you can also see that, as you already suggested, that some of these monsters actually haven't changed. Take the rust monster. The rust monster is still based on the little plastic on a little guy after all these years. Yep. Um, yep. So it's pretty cool if you think about that. And I think that's why this book, um, you know, old or new, really has something for everybody. It connects with new players of the game, old players of the game, uh, not only because we cover all the periods, but because we really try to make this relevant history that connects with things you know and love today. Yeah, so, by the way, the, the reason we're not going too deep into fifth edition history is that it's happening now. You know, like we're it's we we have a, a big sections on recent Dungeons and Dragons. It's simply that the stuff that we didn't think people knew about was the early stuff. And we're right. Nice. Yeah. Ar- Narcana 2. Right. Come, That's right. Electric Boogaloo I coming out. Were, I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> you have it. to. Uh, yeah, Globus is right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know who has come a long way from first edition? Lols. She does. She yeah. has evolved. <laughs> she looks Little a lot better okay. now. <laughs> She's yeah. doing all right. You didn't like her. You didn't like the old one. I do. You know what? For I think I didn't. I didn't discover D and D until much later. But I do feel like if somebody showed me early Lolth, that probably would have been it for me. I would have been like, I want. I want to know more. I'm in. I don't know. There's something about the early Lolth pictures that like frightens me, but is it, it intrigues me. Mm. Like the like yep. the wizard's yep. eyes looking at you. Yes, I don't know if I would have looked deeply into her eyes. <laughs> I mean, well, we I mean, we were fortunate that particular spread you're, you're talking about. You know, we were we were fortunate enough that all of for whatever reason, however it came together, it seemed like all of the artists of a particular era and a few other eras had actually done a lolf. And as a matter of fact, someone who tweeted just today, uh, Tony Dieterlizzi, one of oh, one of yeah. my favorite yeah. artists, right? Uh, a lot of people know him from the Spiderwick Chronicles. He's the the co-author and creator of that. Um, and he, he brought this re- remarkable style to Dungeons and Dragons coming in around the Monstrous Compendium. I'm sorry, the Monstrous Manual, to be exact, where he did these really unusual watercolor drawings, right? He really did things his own way. And he brought all this interesting character and, and weird esotericness to, the, to his drawings, which, of course, ended up getting into Planescape, right? Mm. And, and then we end up seeing what he, how he influences the style of Planescape, which becomes a completely different visual experience. But I, I think of him because we actually have a, a Dieter Lisi Wolf in there as well from the 2000s. Okay. He ended up doing one, uh, I want to say, around 2002, and, and his, his piece is in there as well. So we really try to cover the gamut in style and, and all the other ways we can. I love it. I love it. Uh, so this book is going to be in your hands, available very soon, right? October 23rd? That October one, 23rd. Days from now. Days from now. Days yeah. from now, oh. listening live. But when do you hear this on the podcast? It will be available at your store. I know everyone listening has pre-ordered it already. Uh, and probably the special edition as well. Uh, we didn't talk much about that, but the special edition, what, what does it have uh, in addition to having the awesome art, cover art by Hydro? Ooh. What's on there? It's got a clamshell by Hydro. The book inside is actually different. It's also Hydro art, so it's not just the um, uh, the standard edition cover. There it is. You get a special cover. Um, With a mimic on the Also back. included <laughs> in it is our prints, um, posters, and a first time ever printed reproduction of what was available at the 1975 Origins Tomb of Horrors. Actually, was what was not available. Uh, Gary, correct, was John? Not available. Uh, this is basically Gary's personal version of the Tomb of Horrors. This is pre 
uh, production version, pre pre um, commercial version that was sold um, later. What 1978 is when Tomb of Horrors came out. So the 1978 version of Tomb of Horrors is what everyone thinks of, right? With the iconic illustrations and the deadly dungeon and all this incredible stuff. Well, this is before <coughs> that. In fact, it's so much before that that it has references to rules that didn't make it into the game. It has references Mystic. to classes. Yeah, classes that didn't make it into the game. It has Gary's handwritten notes on it, and it has these illustrations by 14-year-old Tracy, Tracy Lash, Lash that would later um, evolve into the illustrations for the 1978 Tomb of Horrors that came out in stores, but also stuff that you see in the uh, Tomb of Annihilation uh, recent Wizards of the Coast um, release. And so, you can now play this because it's the only way to get this is in the special edition. And also in the back of it, as a footnote, is the um, material that was the inspiration for the 1975 Origins uh, version as well. So that's right. That's there right. There is cool. a, uh, a lot. Special edition is pretty tremendous. And we wanted to make sure it was loaded with stuff to give it that extra, extra value. Um, it's hefty. It's printed so well. Both editions are printed at the highest possible quality. So you're seeing art. A lot of this art, you can Google it. You think you can look at it on your computer, but you've never seen it like... When it gets printed like that, yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the things we were very proud of is the fact that some of these early uh, D&D things, the printing quality was only as good as it was in the late 70s, the early 80s. And we have an opportunity here to show the same art, but printed with modern printing techniques. So this is the... This is the remastered for HD version of Dungeons and Dragons. That's right. Awesome. So, so, uh, so the uh, the um, I was going to say the bare bones edition. <laughs> uh, the standard edition <laughs> is uh, way to sell it. Tito. How much is that? Do you guys know? On Amazon right now, it's thirty one and change. What? What? Yeah. And for- it's twice as thick as the books you guys publish. I'm not supposed to say that. You can say that. These are our friends. It's 450 <laughs> pages, uh, 700 pieces of art for $31 on Amazon. You can't go wrong oh, man. there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, it, 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 it sounds stupid. I mean, and I'm, I'm hardly impartial here, but we did actually really not fight hard with the publisher and they were very aligned with us, but we really wanted to keep that price point. The The cover price on that, that standard edition is $50 as, as they suggested. It's selling for 30 and change right now, 31 and change right now on Amazon. But um, accessibility in this book was actually really important to us. Mm. Uh, the notion that, I mean, quite honestly, we were, we were hired to do a book that had at least at, at its minimum 350 images and 35,000 words. And we, knew that to do the book of the, the scope that we wanted to cover is going to need a lot more than that. And that's what we did. We, we brought everything to it. And, um, and it was just as important that the publisher worked with us to make sure that we could keep this price point down because we want everyone to have this. I'll be honest. We want everyone to understand the history of this game because we think it's enriching. We think you, you see this book and you, you engage with it. We think it'll actually make your Dungeons and Dragons experiences more enriching as you play 5e. Sure, um, yeah. So that's what I, I think is, is pretty neat about it. But uh, there's even a story in that, the idea that we, we really wanted to keep that, that price point low. And I, I hope people do find value. I believe they will if they buy it at either of those points. And the list point on Special Edition is, is 125 and I think it's 76 right now on Amazon. And there is, is a, a, uh, a Barnes & Noble edition, which has a, a variation with a red border on the standard edition. And it does have some maps that fold out. Ooh, I do like yeah, a map. It's got some extra content about deadly dungeons that have claimed many players' lives and made many, many young children in the 70s and 80s cry. We've 
Because, because, because the, back in the day when you lost your character, you know what you did? You took your sheet and you tore it in half. That did happen. Oh, that's what, what, do you get for, what do you get for your friend that's a Dungeons and Dragons fan? Well, they don't have this book yet because it's not out. <laughs> so that now is a good time to get it for your dungeon master. Say thank you for all those hours. That's a good one. Yeah. Thank you for not tearing my sheet in half like they did back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. Because that's what a good dungeon master would do. Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna kill your characters. That's yeah, one of my favorite things uh, that happened at the uh, the stream of annihilation was uh, Chris Perkins tearing up Joe Manganello's uh, mm-hmm. character sheet live. Had so much so much glee when that happened. It's so it's wow. so hard. And Joe, uh, of course, did a fantastic job of doing the forward uh, to this book. Uh, of course. It means a lot. Death uh, saves. We're, we're putting together a little uh, tour for the book, which is coming up. We're going to be uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. We're going to be in Wisconsin. We're going to be in Philly. We're going to be in Seattle. Seattle, we're yeah. We're going to Portland, uh, yeah. Florida. going to be all over. And uh, those dates are going to be online really soon. So look for those. Um, death saves are good friends. Uh, there might be some death saves. Exclusive Art and Arcana shirts coming down the pipe coming coming like, to the wild coming out into the wild so yeah. if you're a death Safe fan you're gonna want to look for that and um man and i didn't even mention the you, fact Greg, yeah we'll be at the uh, seattle town hall not to mention seattle twitchcon you guys are all gonna be at twitchcon we got a yeah, uh, a panel where and the game hole con a game hole con yeah we're gonna be you're gonna be so sick of us after no. a few weeks you're not gonna believe it not at we're all gonna see a lot of each other this is gonna be great yeah. We're going to be rolling dice, uh, talking about uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Can't go wrong. It's true. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, uh, all uh, four of you, uh, John, Kyle, Michael, and Sam. Do you want to do a quick round uh, uh, where people can find out more about what's going on with Art and Arcana as well as uh, what you do outside of Dungeons and Dragons, which is nothing, right? Uh, <laughs> well, now they can. They finished the book. John, start with you. Where, where, where can people find you? Uh, so I do have a blog that's still called Playing Out the World after my first book, and I blog there about really, really arcane things. Although sometimes I'm trying to incorporate in a bit of the things that end up on our cutting room floor these days from this project. So you can check my stuff out there. Oh, that's cool. And uh, shout out to Mayim Bialik for uh, giving you a shout out for playing at the world. Can we talk about the most embarrassing moments of my life? (laughs) 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 You've seen this video. If you don't, he's talking about She did the video. It's very nice. Obviously, she she was trying to um, tell people how amazing D&D is, which is great. But you know, whoever was advisor on this on this suggested that my book had actually preceded D and D, and so it was a. Oh, know, I didn't see that part in I, I in the Art and Arcana. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It predates Chainmail, is my recollection. So yeah, this, this goes back pretty Kyle, where yeah, can people Peter find Cushing you? Read your book while he was painting little figures for little wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am a um, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I've done uh, fanboys, barely lethal. I've done music videos for Lana Del Rey and Taylor Swift. So pretty eclectic stuff. But I always go back to the things I love, like D and D. So it was a joy to write this with these guys. You can find me at, on Twitter at Kyle underscore Newman, uh, Instagram Kyle underscore Newman, and then on Facebook too. So if you want to chat Dungeons and Dragons, Star Wars, I'm there. <laughs> Sweet. What about you, Michael? Yeah, I'm uh, Michael Whitwer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mike Whitwer. And, um, and I still have a, my website from my last book, uh, like John does. Uh, it's empireofimagination.com, which is like a time machine back to 2015 because I've hardly touched the site since then. But it's, <laughs> it's, um, it still has great imagery of my book and all, the, the, all these other great things. 
Um, I'll update that sooner or later here and get some of this new Art and Arcana stuff on there. But um, yeah, you can find me at Empire of Imagination, certainly. Uh, or on Twitter. And definitely check out Empire of Managers. It's a great graphic novel tracing the beginning of uh, where Dungeons & Dragons came from, from the people who made it. So good job on that. Uh, it's Thank a you. nice little sidebar for uh, Art and Arcana fans out there. Uh, Sam, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Sam Whitmore. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. What do I do? I got a... I don't know. This book is coming out. I've got... Uh, video game coming out called days gone early 2019 i got a album coming out either at the end of this year or next year and um star wars stuff and then also you can see me on the um current season of supergirl so there you go what's your home address this white wall that's the, you can't tell where i am undisclosed location. <laughs> I love how you're like so nonchalant. You're like, I'm on all this awesome, cool stuff that people enjoy. You can check it out if you want. I don't know. It's, it's you know, just buy the book, guys. Buy it all. Well, awesome. Again, thank you for being on. Uh, I can't wait to see you guys at TwitchCon. And uh, everyone who's listening, check out Art and Arcana. Man, that was a really good interview. I love talking to people who know way more about Dungeons & Dragons than I do. But do they know more about Kelsey Grammer than you do? <laughs> you still talking about <laughs> still thinking about Kelsey Hamanet. Grammer? I'm an A. You you know uh, like, just enough about every little thing. <laughs> I'm an A. <laughs> you kind of look like him with the sweater vest. Like d- nothing about me looks like Kelsey Grammer the except sweater the sweater vest. vest. You put on a sweater it's vest. It's true. You're, are you ever going to wear a sweater vest? You again? and me. I'm, I'm going to wear one tomorrow. I hope so. I've got a, I've got others. Good. I will. It just it, now I have it, to make it like a week. So much attention. The week of sweater vests. Yeah, like desensitize us all to I know. the sweater vest. You know what a funny story is though? I was uh, uh, get, getting a bunch of comments, <laughs> and I think Kate was like, "Oh, you look very fetching in your blah blah blah." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, cool." And I go look into the bathroom, and on my neck there was like a white head that was about like, <laughs> a centimeter <laughs> in diameter. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Did anyone's? That's why, maybe that's why everyone was saying I looked good because Everybody's I actually like, looked, looked monstrous. Just focus I had, on the sweater vest. Focus <laughs> on the sweater vest. <laughs> I had like a, a third eye on my neck. <laughs> <laughs> I am little T. Oh, you look very fetching. <laughs> by fetching, I mean. Oh, man. Like. <laughs> So that's how D&D monsters were created by teenagers, uh, which I learned in this interview. Isn't right. That, great? that was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them were looked like beholders that came out of their necks, <laughs> so just like, like my pimple. Gwen must have watched some YouTube video. Yeah. And somebody was talking about a pimple, and now he's super freaked out about pimples. Oh, no. Hey, mommy, am I going to get a pimple? Like, yeah. Can you die from pimples? Do you remember when you were a baby and you had pimples on your butt? He doesn't, thank God. No, but we remember, and that's all that matters. <laughs> you will, and you have had pimples in your I head. remember being in ninth grade and having a huge pimple on the side of my nose, and this kid, whose name I still remember, but I won't say it, commented on it. I'm like, what? And that's the thing that you take with you? Why would you even say something? Like, I know I have a huge pimple on the side of my nose, Do you? and I'm in ninth grade, and I'm 14. Right. 
Dude, don't say it. Why would you tell me that? Was he think he was helping? Like, by the way, like I would have appreciated if you were like, hey, you got a huge pimple on <laughs> hey, your neck. There's a pimple that's you about to You might want to get rid of it. Yeah. And it's going to project over this way. It's going to have some, some, your body. some distance uh, <laughs> records. <laughs> <laughs> All I don't right. know what he thought. Anyway. I am a D&D monster. I will be projectile puffing. beholder. <laughs> All over. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I think we should close this out. What do you think, Shelly? Do you think there's anything more we need to subject these people to? No. No? On to the interview. On to the interview. Yes. Wait, no. This oh. is the outro. What happened? Where are we? This is- Shelly, you've been dead this whole time. I, I- honestly don't remember. <laughs> That's because you're dead. Oh no! Watch out! Ah! Watch out! Pimples everywhere! <laughs>